Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's quite a long one this week. It's going to be, I think, about two hours long. Maybe just a bit short? Yeah, I'm not sure. Something something around. It's a long one this week because it is a big discussion about links. That's what we're talking about this week. Yep. Reintroduction we, of links into Scotland to UK. Yeah. We do have some notes that we're going to have to go over before before the show. The reason for that being is there was so much information, so many numbers, so it was just a lot coming at us at once. So it became quite difficult to sort of fact check and you yeah. know, someone's saying one number and someone says another number, who's correct? And okay, we don't have all the answers for that right now, but we thought having watched, uh, sorry, watched, listened to the podcast again. Well, we did. We can watch we, it. We, yeah, we didn't though. We, did, we listened to <laughs> we it. We listened to it again. Yeah. Uh, having listened to it again, there were just a few things that I couldn't uh, put forward any kind of counter argument for um, or counter questioning. So what we've done is we've gone through the whole thing, taken some notes and anything which I thought required a little bit more, um, we're going to go over very soon in the next few minutes. So you can take that information that I'm going to give you now, which we've now made the phone calls, we've sent the emails to do the sort yeah, of Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't sit around. No, no, we've we, been busy we, we check. the last two weeks. You know, if, so, if someone says something, then we're not just going to take it for what it is. Uh, and we will go and, and find out. Yeah. That's, so that's to the, the best point. of our ability, we've gone and checked everything. And uh, uh, you have to bear with me while uh, I go through all I the I thought notes. we would also point out that before we started this, because you, know, you take what you want from this podcast, you take it the way, you know, however you listen to it, and you, you see the way things are going. For me personally, I'm not anti-links bear in mind that if they reintroduce links into this country it will not really affect my life in in financial terms or or anything no, like that no. so you know for me you know it wouldn't affect me so but i mean after listening to this podcast i i know where i stand now i always think that that a reintroduction or a trial or anything like that should be to the benefit of all the species around not just species but to everything the economy to the people and so on everything needs to be thought about yeah there's a lot to balance out with the introduce and and a lot has changed a lot has changed it's not the way it used to be you know even in 50 years 100 years a lot's changed and bear in mind that they were here 1300 years ago so yeah have a listen, make a judgment for yourself. I mean, uh, for me, I, I don't I don't have any issue with, I mean, it's an awesome creature, is the bottom line. Uh, any of the big cats are just fantastic to watch. I just want to make sure, and that's basically what we you know, like to do here, is that uh, everybody has the facts. So you've got the facts to make a decision, and then whatever happens is made on the best information. So that's that's our aim here, is to try and understand exactly you know what what's behind all of the the chit chat really yeah because it's not everything is you know not everything's black and white and uh <laughs> you know each side of the fence will have different arguments yeah. we're trying to like tease out what the kind of what the true line is and it's te- always tends to be somewhere in the middle um but yeah i'm going to go over those in a minute but uh we've got a few other things to talk about actually Yes, yes, we do we've got a few mentions to make we're not we're not going to make a massive habit of this. But on last week's show, we were joking about uh, getting a sponsor for our car parking space for the game fair. It really was. It was just a passing joke. (coughs) Sorry, dying there. Yeah, it was a passing joke. (laughs) 
And we actually got some respondents that wanted to sponsor us for our car parking space. So we thought what we would do is, because uh, we were actually only joking about the four quid charge that was there last year for um, the car parking space at Schoon, that uh, we would ask uh, the, the chap who emailed us, goes by the name of Colin Richardson. Now, he does have a request, which we'll get to in a second, but we we said, uh, you know, thank you very much. And uh, what we thought we would do instead was ask him to donate the money to an anti-poaching charity, which he did. And he sent us the snapshot and we posted on our Facebook page. Yes, we did. Yep. Um, and he donated $10 to the anti-poaching charity. So better use of the money than our car park space. Um, but thank you very much to him. And uh, he just asked for a very small thing in return, which was that if there is anybody out there who listens to this podcast who might have stalking availability, you know, whether that be, you know, ground that they have or even syndicates or anything that he might be able that to might get be involved useful, in, yeah. Yeah, uh, in the north of England, then drop us a line at info. No, podcast. no, no, sorry. I'm talking that. That's, that's, why, other, I, that's why I looked at that's you. That's our other email address. <laughs> podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and if you do it's that in the, it's in the it's in the description and if you do that we will put we'll, you in contact but anything would be useful so if anyone can help colin out then please give us a shout because he's done a good deed he has yeah he has he's given some money towards international poaching bear in mind that you know ten dollars you know is not far away from a pair of boots for a ranger yeah, exactly. And, you know, it does make it. You know, when you start breaking it down like that, it does make a, a big difference. And this isn't just poaching in Africa. This is worldwide poaching that he's donated to. So, so yeah, thank you very much, Colin. And uh, yeah, hopefully, we hear from somebody for him. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, well, just before I've just remembered, uh, we're going to give um, the Gamekeepers Welfare Trust a quick shout out because they share the vast majority of our content, which we're really appreciative yep. of, and uh, that too is a good cause. So go check them out on Facebook. Yeah, thank you to everyone that's been sharing our stuff. I mean, we've been asking over the last few weeks for everyone to leave us reviews, and you guys have. It's been absolutely brilliant, and you will not believe the help that it gives us. Being ranked five stars on iTunes, it now means that when people are searching, you know, just hunting or hunting conservation and so on, we now show up on iTunes, which is, you know, it helps everyone. And it helps get the message out there. So, I mean, the last few guys, we've got Nick uh, Green Arrow and Blah Vintage 67 and Bid 556. Those are our last uh, three. So thank you to whoever, all, whoever those referred yeah, to. You, you all left amazing reviews and you all left five-star reviews. So if we can keep that up, that would be absolutely fantastic. And uh, I think the last shout-out we have to give is to... One second. The Black Rifle Coffee Company, who... Supply. Oh, if, if you're watching on YouTube, Byron's oh, currently yes, uh, holding I'm, a cup up. To, to yeah, the I'm holding screen. a cup up to the camera. Hang on, I'm going to move my mic a sec. Yeah, so the Black Rifle Coffee Company is an American-owned vet. Well, it's a veteran-owned company in America, and they very kindly gave us a lot of coffee, a lot of coffee. To see us through all the podcasts. To see us through the podcast. So that's pretty awesome. So thank you very much for sending us that over to us. And uh, from what we've tried so far, it's it, yeah you know good yeah I'm but we've not, only tried one type that they sent us we're going to get through the rest in the coming weeks but so far so we're, good. we're both big coffee drinkers so we appreciate nice coffee um and yeah before i get to the nitty-gritty uh we oh, are what, I, was, I was gonna say, gonna say last month we smashed our biggest oh yeah okay our biggest uh amount of listeners last month yeah which was amazing because we actually had 
one podcast less last month than the previous month because yeah. we did an extra podcast the previous month. So to beat our numbers uh, again another month later was fantastic. So brilliant. I think keep, Charlie keep Charlie might take credit for... I think Charlie from Fields <laughs> Channel is going to take I say that there was a lot of people downloading Charlie's show. But a lot of people downloading the older shows too. Yeah. So that was brilliant. Um, no, I was just going to say... And, and as I said in the last one, it's tell a friend about the podcast month this month. I said it in the last one. You're going to have it for April as well? No, it was for April. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. So tell a friend about podcasts. Doesn't matter who they are. Just just tell them about it. If they're interested in the countryside, hunting, fishing, you name it. We've got some amazing guests coming on in the future. We have some more fishermen, maybe some potential fisherwomen, if, mm-hmm. if that's the way you... Yeah, I think fisherwoman. I think that's yeah. fair. Fisher person doesn't Fisher sound person. right. No, it doesn't sound right. And we have some um, more amazing guests from home and abroad coming yeah. up. We can't, we tell, can't you. tell you. We can't tell you. I'm afraid not. We, we are going to blow your socks off with one of our guests. We are. That's all we're saying for now. <laughs> um, we uh, obviously are always talking to our sponsor, um, Scottish Association for Country Sports, who feed us a lot of good info on things that we should be talking about, just things that are topical. Um, and we really appreciate that from them and uh, appreciate their continued support. They uh, continue to like what we're doing and have agreed to continue supporting us. So we have to say a, a really massive thank you to them because uh, without that sponsorship, we wouldn't be able to bring you the podcast. No, we wouldn't. And for our podcast listeners, because you're all so loyal in the coming months, we can't really tell you too much about it right now, but in the coming months, we are going to be having prizes Probably every episode. <laughs> and trust me, they are not shabby. Yeah, some pretty cool prizes. And actually, yes, just reminded me, um, there is still a chance to get discounted tickets to the Irish Game Fair. Yes. You just need to email us. Yep, email us and uh, we'll and be we'll, able to... Or, or hook that up for you. I guess we should start with the yeah, links. Yeah, let, let's get into this. So you have to bear with me for a couple of minutes while I go through my notes here. He's got a lot of notes. Just I will interject where, where I can. I'm quite silent during the whole... Uh, whole podcast because i was actually kind of taken aback by the the huge i don't even know how byron managed to cope in that podcast his 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 head must have been fried yeah there was a lot of paper flying around the place (laughs) it Um, was you know because i'm not i'm no expert on links all i can do or all we can do is is read read papers that have been written about it and just read 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 information and then ask ask questions based on that and speak to people um which is what we which is what we've done and what we did so if you just bear with me for a few minutes, I'm going to go through some details. Now, I, those people who are listening to the podcast, just try and keep this in mind as you go through it. So when you come to the the bits where you see that this is relevant, just try and think back to what we're talking about right you now. Always, you can always rewind. You can always rewind if you really want yeah. to. Um, because this is us now checking sort of facts after we've had a chance to sort of breathe and, uh, you know, in the last two weeks since we recorded it. So... I am going to start with. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to start with uh, a bit of research I did um, on a paper. All the links to the papers I'm going to refer to now. I won't they give will, them to you, but we'll they will them all in be in the description for everything that we've got our information <clears throat> from. So this is uh, titled "Links uh, Predation on Domestic Sheep in Norway." Um, Norway was brought up, kind of discounted, saying we're nothing like Norway, so you can't use their figures. The reason for that is that. Um, the predation in Norway from lynx on domestic sheep is a lot higher. All I want to bring your attention to here is that in this particular study, um, it was found that after following 34 lynx around over a period of five years, they were all collared, they found that 
only 8% of what they killed was fully eaten. And 36% of what they killed was not eaten at all. Now, that wasn't just domestic. That was across the board. That was across everything that they killed. Um, so bear that in mind when we talk about um, how lynx eat. And how, and, they, yeah, how yeah, they behave. And in, how they behave. In the wild, yeah. Um, that same... Uh, that same report also talked about these particular areas in Norway and the actual domestic livestock uh, being killed from them. And I could go through all the numbers, but I won't. I'm just going to tell you what I found from these when I when I extrapolate this out. They have a very low density of lynx um, in these, this particular place in Norway. It was suggested uh, from the reports that we would have a much higher, um, five lynx per 100 um, square kilometers, which is a lot more than their 0.3. And if you extrapolate that out to the amount of um, sheep that were killed, if you're using Norwegian numbers, which I'm not saying is the numbers we should use, but it could be, um, because we do have similar terrain in terms of where our sheep are kept, especially in the sort of uh, native birch woodlands, which we have surrounded by here where we live. We have a huge amount of it here. Huge amount. Um, you're talking in an area of 15,000 square kilometers, bearing in mind the whole of Scotland is 78,000, give or take a bit, um, thousand kilometers squared. You're talking about 7,000 sheep killed per year, which, if you work out the average carcass value right now, 80, 90 pounds of sheep, that's half a million pounds. So just remember, though, try and remember those numbers, half a million pounds over that um, small-ish area you know, a lot less than the whole area of Scotland, and 7,000 sheep. And you'll see we talk about much lower numbers when we're um, having this discussion with Paul um, in the podcast. It is also worth noting that um, all of Scotland is not suitable for lynx. That is in um, the, the the report, the actual consultation document. And there's a, a really cool map in there that actually shows you all the habitat which they see as suitable. The total um, population of lynx which they see as suitable uh, and will survive is 400. That uh, seems to be fairly undisputed, and we talk about that in the podcast. But what um, I failed to bring up at the time was that because lynx will not be found across all of Scotland and only in the suitable habitat, it means that any predation, be that on wild um, game such as deer or, in fact, livestock, will actually be in a much smaller area, much more concentrated than the entire... Yes, yeah, so you can't count area. the whole of Scotland no. as an area that they and can... And the reason in. we bring that up is that if you have... Uh, you could have a fairly small um, kill rate, the number of sheep or deer per lynx per year. However, because you're not... Uh, uh, however, because that is not across the, all of Scotland, the people who feel that effect, it could be much higher for them because obviously there are sheep all around Scotland or there are deer all around Scotland... So you have to bear that in mind. It'll affect some people a lot more than others simply because there aren't links in those areas. Um, just going through my list. Um, they bring up uh, Kiel the Forest. Uh, over a period of 25 years, there will be 28 links there estimated. Um, again, we're still talking about sheep, and they estimate that there's going to be about 135 sheep lost during that period of time and the associated compensation uh, required for that, which is fairly minimal, uh, 135 sheep. If you're using higher numbers, like something even marginally closer to uh, the, the Norwegian numbers, then you could surpass that number just in the very last year of that. Um, we never brought that up at the time, but I think it's it's worth noting. Like we said, there was a lot of numbers. A lot of numbers. A lot of numbers flying around. 
Now, we also um, had a chance to speak with the head of economic services from Quality Meet Scotland just to fact check some of the loss numbers for sheep because this yes. was brought up very strongly um, in terms of how many sheep actually die in Scotland from various different causes. Bad now, husbandry. Well, that was what yep. was brought up. Bad husbandry and um, malnutrition were the two things that were brought up by Paul. Um, and I would say that, you know, on reflection... Looking back at that, that's it's definitely not fair to suggest that those numbers entirely come from that. And also, if you look at the the total number, the the number banding around was six million. Now, the most most of the places that you find that six million number mentioned is in animal aid and, and PETA, <laughs> which I don't carry a huge amount of weight with. You know, anything that they want to push as a number because they are always ridiculous to that extreme. So we went and found our own numbers on this. And for total sheep lost during the year for various things, it could be stillbirths, um, uh, predation, just anything that kills a sheep. The sheep tend to want to die fairly easily, as anybody who lives in the countryside will know. But you're talking more like 1.1 million to 1.9 million, not not 6 million. million. And in Scotland, obviously, that number is, is much smaller, 230,000, 390,000. So just keep those much smaller numbers in mind when we're talking about 6 million. It's also worth noting that um, the lamb losses are a lot smaller as well. Habitat. Um, it is worth noting that close proximity to forests increased predation. Um, I don't think quite enough was made of the fact that, in actual fact, in Scotland a lot of the places you find sheep are surrounded by forests. Yeah, the, it, the point was never really hammered home enough because the argument was that the lynx will not cross open fields, that, you know, they don't like going out in the open. And the problem is, is that, I mean, like it, like here, we, we have wooded areas that sheep go, live in, but we also have open fields that are surrounded by woodland, mm. completely surrounded by woodland. So... I mean, when at the very start, you will hear a discussion about habitat and the kind of habitat that lynx like. Um, so just bear that in mind as you go further on when you talk about the kind of habit, when we're talking about the kind of habitat that you find sheep in in Scotland, which is actually sort of broken scrubby ground and rough silver birch. Everyone's going to think this whole podcast is about sheep. Well, it's, it's not. It's, it's just not. that those, may, those were mainly the numbers that we had to yeah. fact check. Uh, I'm actually about to get to deer. Okay, we're, go we're coming to deer. So um, The last thing I wanted to mention on sheep was uh, that there is also a, a big thing made of how uh, the actual husbandry of sheep, especially in terms of their transportation for slaughter. Um, and it was brought, it came across um, from, from Paul's end um, that we are sending sheep you know, over the entire country and loads of... Um, well, I say, the, I say the, we, the agri agricultural the, community. The, the, point, the point was brought across because he was trying to say that how can farmers care about their, care about their livestock. really care about their livestock if they're willing to send them all the way across Europe in horrendous conditions. That's basically the point that was trying to be made. Yeah. And when we check this again um, through the, the head of economic services and all these numbers that I gave previously and now are agricultural censuses, that's where they're taken from. Um, in actual fact... The vast majority of exports, 90% of all exports of sheep in the UK are from Northern Ireland to Southern Ireland. And that's a number of 400,000. And anything else that is transported can only be transported for a maximum of 12 hours. So 
that those are the hard facts and that's the legislation that farmers have to abide by so just keep that in mind when you when you hear because uh, that bit got fairly heated uh, we also spoke to the NFU uh, National Farmers Union for Scotland uh, yep. importantly because uh, like a lot of stakeholders they had been sent out the consultations but um, they haven't actually responded and it is the case that as far as the consultation process was concerned that any stakeholders that didn't respond were it was basically taken as given that they, they were, were okay. happy with it yeah, yeah. yeah that they were okay with the uh, the trial period going ahead and they i'm just going to make sure that i don't misspeak here um they want to make it want, wanted to make it clear when i spoke to them this afternoon that due to the fact that they have not responded does not mean that they are in support of the uh, reintroduction of links or the the trial going ahead yep and although they haven't responded right now at a future point in time if they feel like uh, it needs their interjection uh, they will um, but the general feeling from their members um, this is not speaking for the NFU for Scotland but the general feeling of their members is that they're they're opposed to it um, but that I will just reiterate that that is not the position of um, the Scottish NFU but that's the feeling of the members in general so from there to uh, I'm going to go to tourism next uh, actually. tourism yeah so the tourism numbers uh, were quite staggering. Uh, the ones that came out in the report, you're talking tens and tens of millions of pounds, 67 or 70 million pounds generated. Uh, that was what their estimate uh, estimate would be for the sites uh, where links are, where they want to reintroduce uh, reintroduce links. Yeah, making now, centres, uh, link centres. Yeah, trying I'm to encourage assuming, people to come. Yeah. Um, now, when we started to dig into the numbers from this, which come from the ACOM report, which they reference. Uh, we discovered that those numbers were based on a poll of 1,042 people. Only 1,042 people. That's where the percentages came from that they extrapolated out um, to get to the, the tens of millions. It's amazing what polls can do. It is amazing it what polls can do. And, I mean, just trying to take a step back from that, you know, when you're talking about something so serious, I would, I kind of expected that it would be more than just 1,000 people. Maybe 10,000. Yeah, I mean, 1,000... <laughs> There was 9,000 people responded to the consultation process, which was um, the question of, do you want links reintroduced or not? Um, but this particular part is only in reference to how they extrapolated the economic data for tourism. Yeah. So how much money they're going to make yeah. from people visiting and so on to see links. So a fairly small um, sect of society. Now, we actually, well, I bear in we, mind, you're not going to see them. No. Um, so, yeah, you, you listen to that part of the discussion, make yep. your own judgment, but keep that number in mind. Now, my brother, in the meantime, uh, ran two polls. I did. Just um, just because well, me and Byron have actually discussed this over the last few weeks. Polls are good, but at the end of the day, anybody can make a poll and then make the numbers bigger by what's the word you use extrapolating out yeah <laughs> yeah doing that and then you come up with these amazing figures so just just to prove a point we ran a poll on um deer stalking uk now obviously yeah it's obviously a certain type of people who are on the deer stalking uk facebook page but this is this is why we did it because it proves this point uh, and we also ran a completely open one on, on twitter on twitter mm -hmm. and if you look at the percentages of that 82% of people um, polled on Deerstalking UK said, no, we don't want links back. 
And on Twitter, which was completely open, there was 67% of people said, no, we don't want links back. So that just gives you an idea. And the, the numbers there were, it was about 250-odd on... Uh, uh, that's only in a few hours, though. They've oh, got, yeah. got 7,000, almost 8,000 members on there. And in two weeks' time, the poll will continue and we'll bring you more updated figures in two weeks' time. Yeah, so yeah, take it with a pinch of salt because it's a very sm- narrow part of uh, society that we are actually polling. But it still proves the point. You know, in that particular sex society, clearly the evidence shows from that very small number, only 250 odd, that there isn't, doesn't seem to be massive support. For Be- bear in mind that during the podcast, you'll hear that 90% of the British public want. Well the, remembered, though. Want yeah. the reintroduction to happen. And, you know, that's just the point of you can make figures bigger because that's 90% of the whole of the UK from. Yeah, so just keep it yeah, in mind. Yeah, keep it in mind. Uh, Rodia. Now, this is important because right at the start, we talk about uh, the predation or what they like to predate on. And it is stated that up to 90% of their diet will in be rodeo. about 2 minutes 30 in. Oh, you've already checked this. It's about 2 minutes 30-ish, yeah, cool. from what I remember. So if you take that and then fast forward a bit, you will then hear us talking about uh, the amount of deer that would be taken from a uh, full population once Scotland got to its full capacity of 400 links. Now, once you run that 90% through, you get to 21,600 roe deer um, a year that would be taken in Scotland. We only shoot about 30,000 uh, in one year. So I was making the point that it doesn't leave a lot of room for the sporting opportunities, if you want to call it that, uh, in terms of rodeo stalking, and it was argued that well, they don't, they don't just eat rodeo; they eat other deer as well. But if you take it back to the beginning of the conversation, it was ninety percent of the deer that they eat are going to be rodeo. Um, but it is also stated that they will eat proportionally to the species available, which does counter that argument slightly. But it, or if you turn that on its head, that also suggests if there's more sheep there, they're going to eat more sheep. So. You know, that That is a, a quote from their actual uh, consultation document, eat proportionally to species available. So take from that uh, what you will. Um, one very important point. Um, Germany is talked about a fair amount because a lot of the data that they pull uh, for so, the consultation so, process. So we so, rang Germany. Yeah, we rang them up. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a few contacts there, um, family actually, uh, as well as friends and hunters. And it was stated that you know hunters hunters love the lynx. They they work with with the lynx. They welcome them. Yeah, they they welcome them. Now my friend that I spoke to is a very upstanding chap, and uh, yeah, he he does a lot of hunting. He knows his stuff, and he has some hunting in some large forestry blocks in Germany. Now he he made it very clear that he has no no issue with the lynx in general. He he like you know he likes it as an animal, but he said that they have to be in the right places. And we were talking about the reintroduction. Now, what actually happened when the lynx came through his forestry blocks was that they completely wiped out the mouflon. Now, there were there were no mouflon left in his forestry blocks at all now. Now, for those people who don't know what a mouflon is, it's basically a, a wild sheep. Uh, they didn't really tackle the rodeo at all. He said that they didn't notice any um, detrimental effect of the rodeo, but, but no there's mouflon. no left. So, again, read into that what you will, but he... Certainly, if if he had been asked, you know, he, he wouldn't have given the same sort of rosy tinted look as in terms of how hunters interact with lynx that we were maybe given um, from Paul's point of view. Which obviously, you know, that's the the opinion that he's um, trying to push because he wants to 
reintroduce links and I'm just giving you the complete flip side now I've had a chance to call some people in Germany um, and that was his reaction to it when I spoke and I think we are almost done um, yeah I think that's everything I wanted to bring up but now that you have the facts that we have managed to check across we hope you enjoy the show yes In the studio today, we have a very exciting podcast. We have Pete Miles here from the British Wool Marketing Board and, importantly, um, Dr. Paul O'Donoghue, who is involved in the consultation process for the reintroduction of links into Scotland and, you know, broadly across the UK. It's a really important podcast, this, and we've had an amazing response from, from people who we, we through Stax Scottish Association for Country Sports, they they went out and put out a, a public question to their members and anyone else who follows them uh, through their social media feeds. I, I have them here. Uh, a huge yep. a huge document huge. of uh, people replying to Sax, which was quite nice. Um, so it, it's great that we've had this this interaction, and it means that you know as we as we go on here, we can put those questions to Paul and um, so, you know see what those answers are, and and hopefully answer some questions that are on people's mind. But before we do that, Paul, tell me tell me about this project and tell me about the Lynx. We don't have, we've got Scottish Wildcats here, but we don't have anything as big as a Lynx. No, so the last Lynx was exterminated uh, around 1,300 years ago. And the Lynx itself is, it's a medium-sized cat. It's about the size of um, a Labrador, but not as, not as bulky. So it wouldn't weigh as much as a, as a black lab or a golden retriever. Um, they're very, very secretive. Across Europe, Europe, they're actually called a ghost cat because people live with these animals, but they don't actually see them or hardly even know that they're there. Um, they're a deer specialist. Eurasian lynx are a deer specialist. They, over 90% of their diet is, is roe deer. So um, they're an ambush predator. You'll never see a lynx running down prey across an open field. It just won't happen. You'll never see a lynx quartering across a grouse moor. It just won't happen. Um, it'll go against the entire kind of biology. They sit along game trails in forests and they pick off the uh, as they come as they come past. Okay. And the the consultation. I've obviously read through the you know the whole paper that you put out, which was put out as a as a consultation. How how does that whole process work? Can you talk talk us through that because I think the most people won't really know how that process works. And the most recent thing that I can think of that comes to mind for a reintroduction was beavers, which are actually right on our doorstep here. Yeah. Okay, so um, as a precursor to a license application, we um, need to go through a consultation process. And before I explain that, I want to make absolutely clear that we are following the RUCM reintroduction guidelines to the letter. We are also following the SNH translocation codes to the absolute letter. We have one of, if not the biggest team uh, law firms on the planet who are working with us. We're one of their pro bono clients and they're making sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. So when it comes to the actual process itself, uh, we started last year with a, a public survey. So we asked the country. And this was actually one of the if not the biggest um, public consultations, conservation consultations ever done. We got um, 10,000 respondents in seven days. 
which is like five times the amount the beaver trout got over a few weeks. So that shows the level of engagement. And we wanted to gauge the, the feeling across the country. And it came back over 90%, I think around 92% mm-hmm. of people thought links should be back in the UK. And, and interestingly, I think 87% of those people, thereabouts, wanted links back within 12 months. Um, so that told us we were off to on the right track. And we, you know, we, were, we were right in our assertion that the country as a whole is ready for this. So the next step in that is, so we go for the general public, the next stage is national stakeholder consultation, and we've again carried out an enormous consultation. Around 120 organisations have been contacted from almost every relevant sector you can think of. In fact, every relevant sector you can think of. So we're coming to the end of that process, or the middle to end of that process, and then the next stage will be a local consultation. So the national stakeholder consultation will advise us on which site to use as our first release. So sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Paul. Just um, when is when does that process end for the for the stakeholders that you've gone out to? Just so so people know if they're listening. Um, it will be towards the end of April, middle to end of April. Okay, and is the I I assume is there is there more than just a, a single point of contact made, or what happens if you don't hear back from oh, yeah. major stoke- yeah, stakeholders? Yeah, so, so we have we have made sure that all the um, consultation documents have been sent to the right people. We then followed up with phone calls. We've met with people. We've spoken with people. We're actually just about to publish an interim summary document. And on the back of that, we'll then be starting direct stakeholder contact, i.e. sit-down meetings, workshops. We're thinking about putting on an an event to invite all stakeholders. So, yeah, it's an absolute belt and braces approach, and it's absolute best practice. Okay, and and as as a matter of interest, what... At the, what is the end result of that part of the consultation process that gives it a thumbs up to say, okay, we need to go on to the next stage? And what happens if you don't get any, any interaction from, from important stakeholders? I, I don't know if it's the case, but uh, what happens if any of them don't get back to you? Well, well this, this is a really, really great bit from our point of view. We have had a, an excellent response, I'd say an outstanding response from all the key stakeholders with very detailed, very thought-out responses. And what's not exciting for us is, I think I'm right in saying that over 95% of stakeholders have asked to be involved in steering groups, have asked to be involved in our, in our project going forward. Now that to us is, is perfect, because it means that we're engaging people. People know this project's serious. They know um, we're serious about delivering this project in the best way. And we're inviting stakeholders to join us to make sure, even if they aren't completely in favor, that their voice is heard in this project. Okay, and so from from that point, what's the what's the, the so the next stage after that is the the local consultations, and then where where's the sort of the end game of the consultation process? How do you know that you get the green light, if you like? How does that work? Well, there's clear guidelines in how to do this, and we're working with the statutory agencies on timescales and levels of engagement and and certain indicators that we, we, need to, we need to hit. So the local consultation will involve, you know, going meeting local people, local events, schools, village halls, talks, street surveys, door-to-door surveys. And we've got a, we work with the University of Cumbria, and they've got a, a, a department who specialise in this area, an academics who specialise in this area. These guys are the real experts in putting together these kind of consultations, and we have them working for us. We're very lucky to have that. Okay. And 
so if we fast forward then to the end of the consultation process and we assume that um, you get you get the the green light and it's a go yeah. how does the actual trial work so um, and, and this is an important point so this is not a reintroduction Mm -hmm. No, I've never said this is a reintroduction, and no one from the Links UK Trust has ever said this is a reintroduction. This is a five-year scientific trial to assess whether Links can live in the UK. Okay. We, be we believe they can, and, and they will very well, um, and we want to prove that scientifically. So this, this trial will be, these Links will be monitored intensively 24 hours a day. They'll be, you know, some of the best studied animals on the planet. Um, and that's what we want. We want to show, and we will probably, well, we're, we're confident, we'll clearly demonstrate links to a perfect fit for the, the UK um, environment. The, um, there's a couple of sites, uh, proposed sites, in, in your paperwork. Just can you tell uh, the listeners how they were chosen and what, what makes them suitable, and particularly talking about the habitat that we have in, in Scotland? Yeah, so um, we looked on, we looked at the at the maps, we looked at the forest cover, and we looked, so the three parameters we looked at, forest cover, deer density, and human population. What we wanted was good forest cover, not so many people, and quite a lot of deer. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a lot of places in Scotland that tick those boxes. You know, what I, what I will say is, there are far more potential release sites than we've listed. We have had landowners contacting us from all over Scotland who were keen to have links on their land. And we've had to, the difficulty has been narrowing it down. And, you know, we've had huge engagement from, from landowners on that, so that's really exciting from us, from our point of view. So, yeah, we chose these sites because, you know, links are deer specialists. They're elusive. They don't particularly want to be around people at all. So we picked areas that would fill the, the requirements. And the so, so the ones that we have uh, here are Thetford Forest. What's the one up in Aberdeenshire? Just refresh my memory. Huntley. Is it Huntley? Is it a site near Huntley? Sorry? Is it Huntley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. in Huntley. Yeah. yeah. And uh, where's the so I, I actually I've I've written it down here somewhere, but just so that people know where it is. What are the sites so, that have been picked? So there's Napdale. Well, sorry, the Kintyre Peninsula. Mm -hmm. um, there's a site in Aberdeenshire near Huntley. And there's a site in, well, Kielder Forest spans um, both Scotland, spans the Scottish-English border. Yeah. So there's sites on the Scottish side. And there's also potential sites on the uh, English side. And the actual release, obviously, you need to source links from somewhere. So how have you decided where that's going to be? And how does that part of the process um, unfold? So that part of the process is developing really nicely and very quickly. So we looked across Europe and we, what I will say is we work closely with um, the links experts across Europe. These are the people who have done this these kind of projects before. So the Germans, for example, we work closely with these guys um, to, again, to maintain best practice. And we, Romania has healthy populations of links. So we visited Romania, the Carpathian Mountains and Transylvania, and we, we met with the major NGOs in, and the government officials in Romania. And we're in the process now of um, moving forward protocols to find relevant links and to put in place plans to, um, when we get the license, to bring those links over. And is that, uh, it's obviously, uh, is it, do you tranquilize them? Do you catch them in live traps? How, how, how do you go about it? Um, we're just finalizing the protocols on that, and that, that will be uh, led by 
largely by the Romanians. Okay. Okay. And in terms of the the release sites that you've got here, what is the what are the proposed numbers to be released in each site? Um, just six per site, and we'll only be going. We'll be going for once. Just one. We'll be applying. We'll be applying for one site initially, with six links, three of each set. Okay. And that taking a, a particular a particular site and looking at it over the the five year cycle that this this trial has to go through what yeah. what is what are the boxes that you're looking at to be ticked so that you know that it, it's a, a success and what criteria um, are in place for you in terms of hurdles that you're you're forced to cross for reintroductions um, so the answer the first part of the question we'll be monitoring literally everything we'll be monitoring impacts on ecosystems kill rates impacts on deer movements impacts on um, local economies, rural regeneration, impacts on, if any, on livestock, and just we'll be looking at uh, social attitudes. So like I say, we, this will be a, the whole area will become effectively a study site, and we'll measure everything from, you know, the man in the street's opinion to the number of deer killed per year per lynx. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then our job then is to collate the data and to assess the impact of links at the end of that five-year period. And, and as I say, well, we believe it will be wholly positive because, put simply, that's the overwhelming message from across Europe. This is not a new idea. This is not a novel project. This is kind of old news in Europe. Mm-hmm. I've, I've actually I've had a look at some of, the, uh, some of the reports that have come off the back of the, the reintroductions in, in Europe. The one that... Uh, I was reading quite a bit into it. It's re- really interesting, um, you know, what's gone over there. We don't even really know that it's it's happened exactly. you know, in the last couple of decades. And I know, and some people might not be aware of this, but there are actually very uh, fairly large populations, natural populations, that haven't been reintroduced across Europe and uh, in Scandinavia. Yeah. There's a, a lot in Russia, which I didn't appreciate quite the numbers that were were involved in those. But I was looking at the report on the Hartz Forest in Germany yeah. in particular. Yeah. Where, they, where they're sitting right now, it didn't seem to me like they'd really come, managed to get on very far from the initial introduction. The paper that I was reading suggested that there was 10, um, 10 individuals in that forest, a vast area. I couldn't believe how big some of these forest ranges are up over there. Well, why why is that not moved on? I kind of expected a higher population. Wherever you've got information from, Byron, it's utter rubbish. <laughs> okay. It's utter rubbish. There's, there's well over 100 links there. 100 links? Yeah, we, we, we were in Germany last year. And what, uh, what do, I, you'll I know more I about... Know you, I, don't know where, I don't know where you got that. Honestly, that, that figure of 10 links is absolute nonsense. Okay. It has no relevance. It's about 1,000% out. I'll, I'll find the paper here so that you know what it is while we're talking. Um, yeah. But just to put this in context on that, the German population, the Hearts Mountain um, project has done incredibly well. They started off with releasing between 15 and 20 links. The population is now um, above 100, and it's gone so well that the Germans are now planning an entirely different reintroduction in the south of the country to emulate what's happened in the Hearts. And it's been so successful and so popular, the entire Hearts region is called the Kingdom of the Links. They've branded the whole area. Is the kingdom of the links. 
can you, I mean, that, that's, since we're talking about it, and you'll know more about the actual um, reintroduction than I do, what, tell me how that went from, from day one for them over in Germany, because I, I guess there, there are some similarities with what we'll be doing here. Yeah, the great thing about Germany is it's a very direct comparison. It's similar to us, you know, no one would argue that Germany is, isn't similar to us economically, and isn't similar to us in the way we kind of use um, the landscapes and population densities and that kind of thing. So it's a great um, template. So we wanted to see, we wanted to see for ourselves how a link to introduction works. So we went, and it's amazing. In the forest where there's like literally dozens of links, there's like um, kids playing, walking, you know, running off into the forest. There's families sat there having picnics. There's like um, elderly couples on the, on the kind of walking stick tottering around the woods, and there's links all over the place. I mean, you, 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 could no, ar- you could argue that that would be going on in any case. I mean, is that, re- is that really uh, in directly related, directly in proportion to links being there? I mean, no, I don't no, know, because no, I've never the seen it. The point, the place, point I'm so. making is that there's lots of links there, and, and people are extremely comfortable with oh, that. Oh, being in the same area. Okay, yeah, I understand what yeah, you mean. Yeah, there's no, there's no kind of conflict with that. Um, and, and in Germany, um, we asked them a direct question. We said, what's the impact from, on farming? And they kind of looked at us and they said, well, said, what's your compensation budget? And they said, for the entire country of a population of well over 100 links, well, you tell me, what do you think the compensation fund would be? Um, what you get? Maybe the what man next to us would, would be... 100 links over 100 square miles in forest that contains um, livestock. What do you think the compensation fund would be for the for the entire country? I couldn't hazard a guess, but I guess it would depend on the density of, of livestock and the type of livestock. Miles, miles hazard a guess. Well, I, I, it's impossible for me to, to gauge that without knowing actual numbers of... of okay. I mean, I have so no I'm, knowledge of the livestock in that area, so how could I hazard a guess? It's ridiculous. Okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how much it is. It's um, 850 euros. In, in total, or per in head? In total. In total, over a hundred links, it works out about about six and a half quid per links. Okay, I I, I tell you what, I do I, de- I definitely we are going to revisit the the livestock thing. I'm going to press pause on livestock just for a little bit because I want to get a, a bit more of a picture about links and their natural uh, their natural prey. But we I, I want to we will definitely return to that just so that you know because I've, I've looked it up while we've been talking so that uh, people know that I am referencing something when I said 10. It was, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, Kazensky et al., 2012. Uh, that was the paper that I got the uh, the 10 for hearts. But, um, no, it's absolutely... Um, like I said, there was more than, there was more than 10 reintroduced 15 years ago. The, the one thing I did read about the, the reintroduction there, which goes on to... I guess it could happen here, is the mortality from reintroduction through disease. Obviously, we've got road networks here like they have anywhere in Europe. What are you ex- you're only releasing six. What are you expecting the mortality to be? Um, we, we expected to be... We wouldn't be doing this if we expected the mortality to be high. So we expect it to be low, and the sites will be chosen um, with that in mind. And in Germany, the Half Mountains... It's a fairly big bit of forest. It's fairly analogous to Kielder. Yeah, it's about But it's surrounded, it's surrounded on three sides by Autobahn. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who haven't been to, to Germany, the Autobahn is about twice the size of any, any UK motorway. And what's really interesting is, links cross it. And they cross it fairly regularly. 
and they don't find significant mortality. In fact, links had crossed the autobahn into a different forest block and the Germans didn't even know. So a major road wetness... Sorry, let me try that again if I can spit my words out correctly. Major road networks are not a major barrier for populations. They, they don't seem to be. They don't seem to be. The, the evidence, you know, suggests that links can and do cross these barriers effectively. However, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that road mortality isn't a concern. Of course, yeah. And I'm certainly not saying that road mortality is something we'll be monitoring extremely closely because, you know, we, we will take a lot of care bringing these links in mm-hmm. and we want them to to thrive yeah I mean, um, so yeah it's absolutely a part you know road mortality is it's arguably um you know something we'll be looking at close well it is something we're looking at closely in the trial the, the one thing i was quite surprised about when i was reading the the results from the initial um yeah 24 released in the in the hearts project was that there were four or five um animals who actually died of starvation and I was just wondering why you think that would actually occur. Would it be, I, I assume, having not been there, that there's obviously plenty of food source, and that's why the reason, that's why the area was chosen. Yeah, so I can explain that um, very simply. So the Germans, they use captured red links. So these, these links were zoo links. Okay. They'd never seen a deer, they'd never killed a deer before. They'd never seen a car before. They'd never... Um, you know, they hadn't lived in the wild before, so to some, on one level, to a large degree, they were naive links. Um, the Germans used these captive red links, and a lot of them adapted very quickly. Obviously, some of them, a very small number of them, um, didn't. However, this is completely different to our plans. We will be using adult links that have already proven they know how to be a link. They know how to kill deer, they know how to avoid traffic, they know how to avoid people. So, yeah, we, we expect the mortality to be incredibly low. So There's these are 100% wild links that are, that are coming. So, like you say, they, yeah, they've yeah, been yeah. hunting. These are, these are links professionals, as you put it. <laughs> well, the, the zoo links are links amateurs. Uh, and, what... you know, inevitably, the amateur links, some of them, um, couldn't make the grade. But mm-hmm. with our links, these animals will be adults. So they already know how to be links. So what sort of, what sort of age class uh, are you talking? And, and how long do they actually live while well, I'm thinking of it? It depends on... Um, you know, it depends on density and, and prey availability, but certainly um, they can get to 10 years, okay. and certainly a little bit over. Um, and, you know, we hope that, or we believe, the UK will provide a nice a nice environment for, for links to do well in. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing that uh, was quite... Well, I know having spent a bit of time in, uh, in Europe, so I, I know visually having seen it, but when I looked up the numbers... Is there continuous forest blocks which are, you know, colossal and some that? I mean, the Hearts Forest. I actually just looked it up just before coming on here because I wasn't quite sure how big it was. Is in excess of two hundred square uh, square kilometers. I mean, our forests yeah. are are nothing really in comparison to those. Um, Kilda's four hundred and eighty. Kilda certainly. Kilda certainly is. Right. I think it's 480 as far as the best I could... Uh, that, that's bigger than the Hearts Mountain then by your, by your numbers. No, 2,200 square kilometres oh, for Hearts I Mountain. You, I thought you said 200. No, 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 2,200, sorry. Maybe I misspoke. Kilo, so uh, the, the reason why I'm, I'm just bringing that up is people who have been to Europe will visually, you know, you fly over it, you see just continuous forest blocks going and going and going. And you can visualise how, you know, links could get you know, be lost and, and never seen in, in an area like that and why it would be perfect habitat. 
we are, we don't really have that same you know vast uh, continuous blocks of forest, and I'm just wondering if they're uh, woodland uh, dwellers and hunters, as you've explained, how our sort of more broken network uh, would would work for them in terms of habitat, and also how in terms of them spreading out across the country as years go yeah. by. If we if we take it beyond your six and assume it's successful, it. and you know it's sort of recolonizing the country. Okay, no, absolutely, it's a great question. It's a very good question. It's an important question. So, um, before we did this, we looked at the scientific data on forest cover and potential for links in the UK. And there's a paper by Hampton et al., which looks at this. And they take data from, um, based on European links, and they look at forest cover across Scotland. And what the conclusion from that was, looking at habitat availability and connectivity, was that the UK could hold around 400 links. Yeah. It yeah. could actually be one of the most significant populations um, in Europe. So we do have the forest cover, admittedly, in place. It may be contiguous rather than continuous. Mm-hmm. But links can modify, links can do well in that environment. And they can, they're showing that in Germany now, where they're leaving the Harz Mountain forest, they're going into more broken habitat. And again, the kill rates on deer are fine. There's no increasing kill rates on sheep, and the links are spreading across the country, which is great. So the the, the template, the the facts in Europe that links can and do um, adapt to different habitat types, but they are forest specialists, and they will seek out forest cover. But they could cross, or they could use hedgerows, they could use um, the landscape to go from one block to another as they expand yeah because I, I like we in, in scotland we've got obviously got we've got loads of i don't know i'd, I'd call it kind of scrubby ground with yeah. uh, that sparse native yeah. birch woodland uh i was yeah. we were just driving along it today and i was actually discussing with my brother obviously knowing that we're yeah. going to be talking about this tonight would this be ideal you know sure. thoroughfare for for links i mean it, yeah. to look at it, it it certainly doesn't look like a forest but no it, they need enough cover to ambush i assume well, That's exactly, and it's like um, it's like you know when you know in Scotland, um, a lot a lot of the time there's a lot of bare areas, but then when you get to the steeper ground and you get to the river valleys and that, it's actually quite um, it's quite wooded. Yeah, yeah. Again, you wouldn't you wouldn't call it a forest, but I tell you, you know, having worked on wildcats for the last seven or eight years and been in this environment a lot, it's bloody hard ground to walk across. It is, yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's pretty tough ground to to scramble through. And that's perfect for links. So, you know, there's lots of these. Um, when you look, when you actually look at the connectivity of the habitat, it looks really good. And like I say, looking at the, the scientific data, the published data, the facts are, are there for all to see, up to 400 links. Yeah, no, I, 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 did, I did read that on a, in, a, in a couple, not just your own, but in a, in a couple of other yeah. publications as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is now, you know, that figure and that work is, is you know, no, no one disputes that work. No one disputes um, the way that work was done, and so you know it's a great, it's a great template to, to use. And and you know we think we're going from we're just we're talking about six links. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of growth potential. Now I want to ask you about growth potential and genetics just in a second. But before I forget, there there's not just the Eurasian links which you're talking about. You're talking about very uh, specific species. There's also, um, I came across, and I didn't even know it existed, um, to be perfectly honest, the Iberian lynx, which is much smaller and much yeah. more more scarce and rare. 
is that a species yeah. that ever occurred here and how come no. you're not looking it, it didn't ever occur in the uk no no okay. it's a red herring um so yeah the abia links um to anyone's knowledge has never occurred in the uk mm -hmm. so what we did was and i've done this personally i have gone back to cave material from pre-extinction so i have got access to linked bones from more than 1300 years ago and i've had those lynx bones analyzed by experts and uh eurasian lynx and what's really interesting is you find eurasian lynx bones from inches down up in scotland to devon down south in, in southern england in yorkshire the lake district wales kent they were literally everywhere so the, the, the Iberian, sorry, apologies for interrupting, Paul. The Iberian uh, links that I'm, I'm talking about, uh, obviously, it, it didn't occur here, but for those people who don't know what that is, it's, uh, you'll, you'll describe it a lot better than I will. It's uh, a much yeah, smaller links, different... Much smaller animal, and it's a bird specialist. Okay. Bird and small mammal specialist. It eats, it eats, um, it's more of a, um, it eats like her, a rabbit, and um, birds. It's not, it's not a deer specialist, and it's not a... Um, it's 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 quite a different excuse me quite a different animal. Okay. Now, but the, the simple fact of the matter is, it was it was never here. So, you know, we would have wanted to reintroduce an animal that wasn't here, whereas the Eurasian lynx was very much here. Okay. The the classification of Eurasian lynx in Europe is it's not an endangered species, but it's um, it. I'm just trying to actually. Th what is it? It does actually have a specific def definition. Yeah. What under the? You'll know what it is. Uh, yeah, it's class as threatened. Threatened. I'll find it in a minute while I'm asking you this question. Um, the decision to reintroduce a predator species such as lynx into the UK as opposed to just continuing to harness continuous populations across actually connected countries in Europe itself, would it not be better to spend the effort there rather than in an isolated island like the UK where the population can only ever grow to a, a certain amount? Well, there's a few things there. I mean, you can apply that to a whole range of species from golden eagles, pine martins, red squirrels, hedgehogs, water voles, great crested newts. I could go on and on and on and on. So having the arguments with a great respect, um, ridiculous. No, oh, no, I, I wasn't posing it as an argument. It was just a, it was just a, a thought in my, because I know so, that so, there are so obviously please, existing we're, populations. We're, we have a, you know, a moral, ethical duty, call it what you will, to restore species that for, to the former ranges, and the links are here in the UK, so they should be back here in the UK. But notwithstanding linked population status or species status or anything like that, the crux of the matter is they will help to they will help to regenerate forests, they will help to regenerate rural economies. So if you take linked conservation out of it entirely and look at this as an infrastructure project, it's an absolute no brainer. So even if you took out the fact that we want to, you know, set up another links population it still makes sense on every level. I've, I've just found the, the bit that I was actually fumbling around trying to find, which was the... Um, the uh, apologies. The red list conservation status of least concern. How, how does that compare to your... The, what uh, status was it that you were referring to which was endangered? 
No, it was it was threatened. threatened it depends which range you which, which range you look at. Okay. There's lots of different um, range states for lynx. In some it's um, least concern, in some it's extinct, in some it's vulnerable, in some it's threatened. So, for example, in um, in Romania, there's lots of lynx, but in France and in Germany, it was extinct and subject to reintroduction, and those populations will still be classed as, as endangered. Okay, so this uh, this European red listing must be for Europe as a whole, which is of least concern yeah. as opposed to threatened. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I assume yeah, that's because of the large populations in Russia and, and the other countries. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not... It's not um, like you say, there's some big population in Russia, some big population in Eastern Europe. As you move west, um, you'll see those populations uh, will be classed as endangered or critically endangered. Okay. The just going back to um, natural prey, we we've established that roe deer are the are the primary prey species that they're going to predate on. I assume that that's not the only thing that they're going to eat. What what is their spectrum of food that they're gonna they're gonna tackle while they're out here? In you know, looking at Scotland in particular. Yeah. So if we look at Scotland, um, they will kill roe deer. They will kill up to year old red deer, and they will um, kill seeker. Mm-hmm. Um, south of the border, and let's face it, it won't be long before muntjacker in Scotland. Um, they will. They will. Hammer muntjac. You know, muntjac will be. Um, we predict uh, and we expect where muntjac occur, links to um, focus on them. As opposed to rodeo, just smaller, easier I to think, tackle. I think there's, you know, you know what, well, you know, if you, yeah. if you go to Stafford, for example, you literally fall over uh, muntjac deer. You know, they they are. You know, I've heard reports from foresters that they're actually starting to displace rodeo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite a serious issue. So the lynx, you know, we expect the lynx to target muntjac. So actually, the lynx will be our, could be an ally in in the control of um, an invasive species, which the muntjac very much is. And, and muntjac are classed as omnivorous because not only do they eat all the understory, they eat bird's eggs, particularly game bird's eggs. If you look at the definition of muntjac, it's quite surprising. They're classed as omnivorous. No, that's, that's yeah. I, I would imagine that if there are muntjac in an area, that uh, it would become a large part of their diet, given yeah. the the size yeah. of the animals that they that they seem to like to eat, which is rodeo. But what about beyond deer species? I mean, uh, surely they're they're yeah. going to eat things. I'm not I'm not talking about livestock. We'll we'll deal with that when I when I bring Pete in um, just shortly. But other yeah. wild animals. What what else are they going to eat? So again, you look at the data. They just eat deer, basically. You know, they might take the odd the odd bird, the odd rabbit, the odd mouse, or the odd bit of carrion, but, you know, 90% of the diet is deer. Mm-hmm. They don't, what they don't do is, they don't like you, when you, if you see a, a fox hunting or a pine mart in their quarter, they go through hedgerows, they flush, you know, they, do, lynx don't do that. They just don't do that. You know, you, people have mentioned to me, they thought, oh, will they, will they go and eat stone curlews? It's like, you know, the reality couldn't be further the truth on that so yeah they, they just eat deer they live in the forest and they sit on game trails and ambush deer they don't chase you know they don't go quartering over fields they don't go quartering through hedgerows hedgerow looking for a mouse because why would they you know look at the you know it's a fairly significant animal and it's not going to waste its time going after a couple of pheasants when it can sit on a game trail and whack a 
mm. nice juicy beer on its way past. Yeah, I, I was interested by this for from two points of view. One was what their effect on deer would be uh, from a, a sporting point of view, and I'll talk to you about that next. But the, the from the second thing would be, you know, what else would they eat that could be detrimental? Now, I, I did manage to find a number of papers. One which uh, which surprised me when I read it, having read you know through your own documentation, was that in certain areas where the deer populations were and densities were were not as high, they may switch over and eat you know rabbits, hares, um, capercaillie, blackcock were mentioned as well. Um, so I, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Um, the evidence suggests that word is linked. You get more capercaillie. Sorry, can you just say that again? Yeah, the evidence suggests that where you get links, you get increased numbers of capercaillie. And the reason because for links, that is? Because links eat foxes or kill foxes. And um, and foxes are a major predator of game birds. So where you get the... Because what, it's about balancing an, a very unbalanced ecosystem. It makes intuitive sense. Links are... Uh, a major carnivore, but we have a whole suite of meso-carnivores, these animals that sit in the middle, that actually have no predator above them to regulate them. So what you find is in natural systems <laughs> where links occur, you get really good population of capercaillie. The So how much are they actually predating on, on foxes then? Is that form quite well, a, a large shown, portion it, of their diet? Yeah, it's shown, it's shown that they can, they can, and it's in the consultation document, they can reduce fox populations by over 10%. And are they doing so, that from a, a territory point of view, or is that more a food thing? Or Obviously, yeah, if the focus is deer. It's, it seems to be, um, you know, they, 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 they go for fox. It's much like, um, you know, like a lion will, will displace and attack a hyena, or a cheetah, or a hunting dog. It's just, it seems to be a similar process to that. It's this whole kind of ecology of fear um, that comes into the area when you get links there. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I know which paper you're referring to, and if you look at that, the number of capercaillies, it's, it's anecdotal. There was like, yeah, I think they found some evidence of a couple of capercaillie kills, but that was over hundreds of um, kill sites. Almost everything was deer. Mm. So we, we, you could say then that Yes, they may kill Kappa, they may kill Blackcock, they're probably going to take the odd hair if the opportunity arises, but what you're saying is that uh, them predating on foxes outweighs any loss that they would um, predate on, on things like Kappa, which are obviously pretty endangered I mean, the, in the UK. I mean, there's no, there's no, I mean, the chance of a leech killing a Kappa... But it's still possible, can, that, all, all I'm trying to get oh, across it's, it's is it's still I possible. Mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, I mean, you know possible and probable are, are different things. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a possibility, but I'd say it's so rare as to be, so unlikely as to be, um, you know, bordering on the, well, lottery, lottery kind of odds, I would say. Um, and they will have an impact on, I mean, you know, the, the studies on Capercaillie are clear. When you look at what's nobbling Capercaillie, it's Pine Martins and it's Foxes. Uh, Pine Martins, something else that was reintroduced, which is the reason why I was uh, asking the question. <laughs> Um, if we focus back on deer, assume that is the the main the main portion of their diet is deer. Yep. How many are we talking? I mean, how much? Uh, how many deer are they killing throughout the year? Yeah, about um, they kill about every five days. Okay. 
Um, they kill about every five days. They're very efficient, so they'll kill a, de- a deer. And again, they don't um, eat the best bits and go and kill another one. What they do is they defend that carcass. And again, we've been we've seen this data firsthand. We've been out with the field workers in Germany. We know exactly how it works. The lynx kills a deer. It sits around the same place for four or five days, eats the carcass, does it again. So they're very, very clean, efficient predators. They're not wasteful. They don't, um, you know, they're not going to go and kill five deer and sit around and, and let the carcasses rot. They they use a carcass, they eat it, and then they go on to the next one. So, is so you're it... talking over a year, about 60, 60 to 70 per lynx. 60 or 70 rodeo per lynx. Yeah. And when you say they're... I mean, obviously, we we know from well, pe- people in the countryside will know of foxes. I mean, they could indiscriminately kill on occasion. Uh, obviously, uh, not not fully grown deer, but you know, whatever it is, chickens, pheasants, and they won't eat it. But are you saying that they they pretty much consume the the entire contents of the deer? What I mean, what does a carcass look? Having not seen one myself, what does a carcass look like after a lynx is finished with it? Well, they you know, at the end of the day, um, a lynx taking on a deer there is a risk to that process. Mm. You know, there is a risk to getting injured. So a lynx would, a lynx, animals, carnivores in particular, do not want to get injured and do not want to kill unless they, uh, certainly large carnivores don't want to kill unless they have to. So basically, these the lynx will kill a deer and they will use that carcass. It wouldn't make sense for that lynx to then go and risk hunting again and, and the energy output of the hunting again while it's got meat on a carcass. So, you know, the carcasses, they're not stripped bare, but they're, they're used. And a deer, if you look at, you know, a deer carcass, there's a lot, a lot of meat on it. Yeah, there is, yeah. And it's, it's similar, it's similar, it's not the same as a, as a bird or, you know, like a pheasant or something where there's, there's actually, you know, fairly slim pickings. And if you look at a roe deer, well, that's a, that's a good bit of meat. That'll keep me going for a while. <laughs> it keeps our freezer yeah. stocked up, that's keeps, for sure. It keeps me going. <laughs> It keeps us all going, and you know. And again, you know, it's the same with the lynx. The lynx has got his larder there. He kills a, he kills a deer, and that's his larder. And and they actually defend it. They um, sometimes even bury the. They cover the carcass with scrub, and they drag like bracken and things over it to protect that carcass and to, um, so so they can use it effectively. So there will be some people out there from a sporting point of view in terms of. Uh, you know, they, they get their income from, from stalking, rodeo stalking in particular, obviously, uh, we we're talking about the lynx. They will see that as a direct threat and possibly threat for their livelihood. I mean, how do you, how do you tackle that issue in terms of social economics? Well, again, uh, you look at the evidence, you look at the facts. So uh, when we went to Germany, one of the first people we met was um, a president of a very big hunting organization in Germany. And I went up to him and we were chatting and I was being polite. And I said, so I assume you were you were against the, the reintroduction of the lynx. And he looked at me as though I had two heads. And he said, no, we were the ones who sponsored and initiated the reintroduction of lynx. And I was quite taken aback by that. And he said, lynx are our partners. We work together. We share the forest together. They make our hunting better. They make our hunting more interesting. If our client has a chance of seeing a lynx, that makes the year. He said, and I'll never forget it, they're our partners. And it was completely, on one level, counterintuitive, even for me. And uh, like I said, the level of um, 
the hunting associations in Germany monitor the links. They're actual partners in the links reintroduction. They're drivers of the links reintroduction. They share data. They collect data. Mm. And it's a, it's a fantastic system. And, like, they think we're a little bit strange. And they think, why do you want to shoot deer that don't live in an environment with predators? Because on one level, they're not the real deal. These deer do not behave like continental deer. They're, you know, they're much steadier and much easier to hunt. And I it's mean, like, why don't we want the, why don't we want the real thing? I mean, uh, I, I've I've hunted in Germany a fair amount, and I think anybody anybody who who hunts who, who is a hunter, especially if they have an interest in in roe deer, I would say that the German roe deer are not really comparable to ours because our roe deer are far far better. Uh, they don't really have very many, um, you know, good trophies. If we're if we're talking social economics here and money, most of the Germans come over come over here to come and hunt. So I, mean, I don't know if that really answers the question in terms of the social economics, and I I would be very it's a shame. I mean I I'm a hunter myself. It's a bit it's a shame I don't have somebody here in in the studio who um, can talk who that is their sole business. But I would be very surprised if there would be anybody uh, who is that is their sole business. M- Given that most roast stalking businesses in the UK are are often private businesses, they're not even part of estates. Um, who yeah. would think that that would be a, a very good partnership? I would see that more as a, a potential threat to uh, a lot of time and effort over many years, possibly decades on on certain grounds to manage populations to you know certain numbers and also certain quality of trophies. I actually just ran a bit of maths here. You said that. Um, an individual could kill about six, 60 row a, a year. At yeah. the, the the maximum population of four or four hundred in Scotland, that's twenty four thousand row deer a year. And I had uh, to hand the number of row deer that were actually um, culled and and registered with um, SNH for two thousand and fourteen, and that was a number of thirty thousand deer. So obviously, only yeah. marginally more. That says to me that there's not a lot of scope for people to hunt roe deer anymore. If if you assume a full population of 400, and they're doing obviously the numbers are you know can go slightly either way because they're not always going to kill the 60 a year, but it's still very much weighted towards the lynx killing a very large proportion of the yearly cull figure. Um, I disagree because you you've missed a very 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 important point. Which lynx is? don't just eat roe deer. But you, you just said that they kill 60 a year. They kill, they'll kill 60 times a year, but they also said they, they eat roe deer and they eat red deer up to one year old and uh-huh. they'll eat seeker deer, probably up to slightly over one year old because they're a little bit smaller. But their, uh, but their diet is about 90% roe deer, is that not correct? 90% deer. Okay. But the, the vast majority... So what is the percentage that's roe deer then? I'm just... I'm trying. Obviously, there isn't somebody here from a, a stalking point of view to to ask these questions. Although I'm sure Daryl has them a little bit later, so I'm just trying to work out what what they would be asking when it's it's you know it's absolutely their livelihood. And I'm sure Pete's going to have similar questions with regard to uh, to sheep when we get onto that in a short while. Um, so so we don't believe that it's a significant threat to um, stalking livelihoods, but the trial will will show us that. Because, well, you know, we'll look at data, we'll look at um, stalking income, we'll look at opinion, opinions from stalkers, we'll work with stalkers um, on this. 
and well, their, their, their opinions and their concerns and, and the actual real data will be collected, and we'll see. Does it cause a decrease in stalking income? And I'll, I'll guarantee you it won't. I just want to uh, bring in here, because this is um, actually um, a message that was sent to us, and it's by an individual that actually runs a row stalking um, oh, business. Got one, I've, got, I've got one here. So it says here um, they don't want their name mentioned, uh, but we can pass it on to you later on. Uh, there's one estate in Perthshire. Um, they've got a thousand acres, and he runs. Uh, they've got a forestry block and rolling farmland. They shoot on average fifteen to twenty-five bucks per year, um, and forty to sixty does per year. And that is the employment of one uh, man plus the income into the local community for shooting and uh, tourism. Uh, I mean, I suppose he, he, that would be a, a good example of, yeah. a, of a chap who, who relies entirely on it for, for his income. Well, I mean, a thousand acres is arguably not um, an estate. And when it, it's it did say small. Link, it, yeah, it's very, very small. And, and when, it, when it's um, put in the context of a linked territory, it's, um, it's negligible. So the concept that that lynx is going to, um, you know, stay in that thousand acres and eat all those deer, again, there's no relevance to the, the biology of the animal. These animals will have up to 20 square miles of um, territory and occasionally bigger. And yeah, they may, if that if that thousand acres feeds into a territory of a lynx, that lynx may take some deer off that estate. But it certainly won't hoover up all the deer in that estate because lynx will be affected by their prey and if they they don't they'll never over they'll never out eat themselves it just doesn't make any biological sense to say to imply that that they would it just doesn't happen for for any predator population as, as the prey density decreases the predator moves on to the next part of its territory they'll grow to the proportion it's just simple biology it's simple density dependence and it's simple carrying capacity yeah. and you know a thousand acres is is um irrelevant in the context of a linked territory size mm-hmm. no i know I, I i appreciate that and obviously it makes sense that a, a carnivore isn't going to you know it, it's, it's going to sustain there there and go, oh, i've killed 59 deer there's one deer left i'm going to try and get it mm. the links will have gone after he's killed a couple because it will become harder to hunt in that area no, no, I, I appreciate so again, that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute, again, it's, it's, a, it's a perceived risk when you look at the actual common sense biology. Those risks just vanish immediately. Well, I mean, I can, I can absolutely see what you're saying in terms of a, a small specific area because it obviously makes sense that they'll, you, well, you've already explained how vast their ranges were and I, I couldn't actually believe when I was saying, seeing that some had you know, traveled over a thousand Ks in, in some circumstances. So it's not like they're going to take an individ- all of one individual's deer on, on a very small estate like this example, but it, it will obviously have an impact. I think from my point of view, the, the total numbers, are, are pro- like we were just discussing, are, are more interesting because of the total numbers we know that are actually being culled in, in total. I mean, it, it would be interesting... To note, uh, to note if you if you could what the the proportions of actual deer species were, because then I suppose we'd be in a in a better position to actually well, put it forward. Depends, an it, depends on, it depends on um, the proportion of deer in the Lynx territory. Mm-hmm. So you know, in Scotland, there's a lot, an awful lot of red deer, um, and there's an awful lot of yearlings, and an awful lot of calves knocking about, and there's a lot of roe deer. So a lynx might he might kill 
roe deer one week and a, a red deer the next. Or I might kill two red deer and a roe deer after that. You know, the opportunistic ambush ambush predators. And he's not going to turn down a nice, fat, healthy um, road deer, uh, red deer calf and wait for uh, an adult roebuck to come past. So, you know, once in the environment, you know, I work in Scotland an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of deer. And there are a lot of red deer as well. And lynx will, probably in proportion to the, the deer species in the territory, eat accordingly. Because, like I say, it's a, it's a chance thing. It's like tossing a head or tail. If you've got equal numbers of roe deer and red deer, then, you know, you've got equal chance of a, a nice calf coming past or a, an adult buck. So I, 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 said, I expect that the, the kill rates and kill proportion will just reflect the deer populations in, in the area. Yeah. So where you've got a lot of, where you've got a lot of roe, they might take they might take more roe. But again, that comes back to my previous point that they're never going to hammer the roe too much because they'll just switch to the reds. Yeah, I mean the proportions w- would never work quite like that, obviously, because the proportion of calves is a relatively small yeah. proportion of the the total red population, which will mainly yeah, be you, made you up of adults. But I, no, I understand if, your proportional. If you've, got, if you've got a lot of if you've got a lot of red deer, and you've got a lot of road, if you've got a lot of red deer and a few roe deer. You're expecting to kill more reds than rows. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the same could the same of what I was saying could also apply to those people who have um, only forestry blocks for red deer. I mean, the, the same argument could apply there. But we'll we'll move on from there um, to talk about the the other benefits as, as you see them to the country as a whole. Uh, in particular, the, the, the monetary values. I mean, some yeah. some of these numbers were were really high. Before I ask you a few questions, can you just tell me about? I've read the reports about where they came from, the independent consultation that came up with it. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk through some of the, those numbers and just explain to people, you know, where the sort of net benefit comes from to links being reintroduced from, from the public's point of view. So, yeah, we were very lucky. We had um, a company called AECOM mm-hmm. uh, approach us to do, to do this, co- uh, this cost-benefit analysis. And these guys are, are real experts in this. It's a massive company that, that deals with some of the biggest infrastructure projects in the world, let alone this country. And so they're, they're absolute experts in cost-benefit analysis and infrastructure projects. So they also, when they did this, this CBA, they were annoyingly conservative. So at every point, um, they always took the conservative view. And the numbers that they came up with were that links will generate you know, between 60 and 70 million, and that... This only takes into account the direct benefits. They didn't even touch on things like ecosystem services, things like um, wider um, tourism opportunities. They were very, very conservative. But the, the numbers are very high for the very simple reason that we live in a country where the countryside and wildlife is, is um, reassuringly popular. Mm-hmm. People like to get out and see stuff, which is, which is fantastic. And, you know... This country, the countryside, is, is lacking in a number of species, and one of the most iconic and majestic and, and engaging is the lynx. So the lynx will have a power to inspire and generate ecotourism like nothing else, just by the fact that it's here. Not by the fact that you'll see one, but the fact that you might see one. Yeah, that proved across Europe. It's not about seeing links. I can tell you, I, I'm a, you know, I would kind of scat myself with a serious biologist and I've worked on cats all over the world. I've seen jaguars, mountain lions, whatever else. When we were in Germany with three other serious biologists in the UK, we were like little kids. 
every corner we went round, every rock was a lynx. It's that excitement about seeing one of these animals that when we were walking in the forest, we saw scratch points, we saw scat. It was exhilarating because we might see a lynx. We didn't see a lynx and that didn't impact on our enjoyment of that, of that um, adventure. And that's what Link can do. They can inspire people who are, have never even thought about the countryside before, who don't care about conservation. They have the power to engage like nothing else. And that's why, in terms of ecotourism, they'll be one of the biggest draws um, in the country. The, the, of the 67, 68, odd million you mentioned, the, the breakdown of that was about 65, so the vast majority of it for recreation, tourism, as you've just described. I, I didn't actually take a note of it. What, over what period of time um, is that estimated? Was that 25 years, was it? Um, is that 20 or 25 years? Yeah. 25 years. 25 years. I mean, the, I mean it, it seems like a, a, a colossal amount of money, and the thing that I, I noted in terms of where they based uh, some of their information on. Obviously, some of it was drawn from, uh, from, U- from Europe, uh, but it was also drawn from the success of the, the Sea Eagle um, reintroduction in Mull, which I, I couldn't quite see the, the, the direct correlation with that. I mean, you, you said yourself about not being able to see them and that they're mainly a noc- nocturnal animal. And... I can understand exa- what you're talking about, you know, the excitement of, of possibly seeing one, although I'm kind of struggling. Uh, we, we were having this discussion in the car today, actually, when we, when we were driving back down the Glen. I'm, I'm struggling to see where the incentive would be for, for people to go time and time again to see nothing. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, a sea eagle is in the air. They've got the centers there. I mean, I see them almost every time I, every time I go and up to sky. But, you know, you're very, very, going to be very, very lucky to see a lynx. Yeah, but by the same token, most people, the, the draw of lynx is infinitely more than sea eagles. Defined just, by what? They're, they're a mammal for a start. They're cute. <laughs> the babies look cuddly. And they're just more engaging than a, than a sea eagle. Even now, you know, most people in the country wouldn't even, the man on the street probably wouldn't even know sea eagles are back. But the man on the street certainly knows that links are coming back. They just have a different level of engagement, a different draw. And like I say, I would invite anyone to any anyone who makes a point you just made. If you get a chance, go to Germany, and what you'll see is links town. You'll see taxis with links on the side. You'll see spas, hotels branded around a links. You'll see a cable car with links on. You'll see a visitor centre. You'll see wooden carving in the street. You'll see the park decorated with pictures. The whole, they've built an entire industry around this animal and no one sees it. <laughs> it's the chance that you might and it's the chance that it creates, it turns a, a rather bland forest into a wilderness into an exciting area, into an exciting place to be. And just to walk in the same area as a lynx is enough. It's, it's enough of people. It's proven. You know, go, you can see it. You can go to uh, Romania and see it. You can go to Germany and see it. You can go to France and see it. It's, it's there. And it's not about seeing this thing. In fact, if you saw lynx a lot, it wouldn't lose its appeal. Look at the Scottish wildcat. No, but I've worked for Scottish Wildcats for eight years. I've only seen them three times in the wild. But that doesn't stop the excitement of wanting to see one. And the Scottish Wildcat is top of most um, naturalist lists to see. 
and people go to Erie to try and see Wildcats, uh, they uh, know full well they're never going to see one. They uh, still go and pay the B&B. So I've got a quick question, and uh, you, you will certainly be able to answer this. Now, Scottish Wildcats have obviously been in the news loads and loads the last, last few months, actually. And yeah, it's part of the work we do, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and obviously it's directly affected in our area that we live in, um, in Angus. Uh, what effect will it have on the the links? The only reason why I'm asking is, will they, you know, do they cohabitate together, or you know, are they in yeah. the same environment? How, can you just explain how how they'll work together? Of course, again, that's a really good question. So, um, you know, happy to answer it. So, I work on wildcats, and I'm as interested in wildcats as I am in links. Believe me, um, we spend a lot of time um, conserving wildcats and, and doing projects for the for the survival and you know let's not be around the bush it's one of the various animals in britain if not the world so it's a massive priority for me personally yeah yeah definitely um, and the evidence the evidence is again it's irrefutable all the way across europe links in wildcats coexist perfectly and when you look at it it makes sense because links are deer specialists and wildcats are small mammal and bird specialists so they they their niche is, is is different so there's not direct competition there and the wildcat is, you know, pretty elusive beast. It's pretty good at climbing. It's pretty good at getting out of the way. And also, they share different habitats. You know, wildcats will use open ground. Wildcats will go across a moor. They will go, you know, they will go across um, farmland. So, so they share different, to some extent, different habitats. Wildcats, I would say, are more, are less forest specialist than lynx. And the, the diets are, are completely different. So, yeah, the evidence, okay. again, just look at the evidence. If you look at a distribution map for European wildcats and European lynx, you'll see it perfectly correlates. Yeah, okay. So, In fact, but, but, I would argue, one thing I'm excited about is I think wildcats will increase um, because of, if you bring lynx back, they will cause an increase in wildcats because they'll promote forest regeneration. They'll promote small mammals. They'll promote um, bird life through forest regeneration, so they could actually be a real friend of the wildcat. Forest regeneration through re- reduced deer populations, I assume? Re- reduced deer populations and and, reduced, and and basically, deer don't behave like deer in the UK. They sit in an area and they eat it out. You know, I've seen it personally, we've all, we've, we've all seen it. Um, they don't behave like they, like in a natural system, they don't disperse, they don't move around. They sit in a place, eat it out and move on. Uh, um, I don't know if I'd fully happens. agree with that. Uh, you know, across, the, I think that's quite a sweep, fairly sweeping statement, though. I mean, I do a lot of, I do a lot of row stalking, and that's that. That I, to just say that as a blanket statement, I don't think is correct. Well, I think I mean, well, in I think some circumstances would, 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 it would might you, be. Would you agree that deer, deer don't disperse and move as much as they would in um, across Europe where there's predators? Oh, obviously, if, if there's predators, it's going to disperse more. But I, I yeah. to say that they completely eat out an area, there is obviously, obviously, damage can be done. But, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, you red, red deer out on the hill. That's not, if you that's not going to, to If you walk through in Oak Woodlands in Western Scotland, you will not be able to show me a seven-year-old oak sapling. There's none. They're rarer than, they're rarer than wildcats. Um, there's no, the regeneration in deciduous woodland is, is frightening. There is none. But, and that's simply because it's been eaten out. You go, you go to somewhere like the Sunlight Woodlands and you look and you walk through. I have done this, believe me, I find it quite depressing. Um, you try and find oak regeneration, sapling regeneration. 
of these key deciduous species, you won't find it. Because it's preferentially eaten over the sitka. For obvious reasons. So yeah, I'm not saying deer don't kill, don't eat every single tree in an area, but they certainly hammer the new growth. I just want to return a minute to the to, to wildcats. So there was a question just from my brother asked that I, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, to pose to you, and that is, we already have um, Scottish wildcats, as as Daryl said, it's been in the news a lot recently, and yet I don't see any. I don't see sixty-seven million pounds over twenty-five years of value added by them, and they already exist. So I, I, I'm trying to understand why links would be different. Um, well, because links are, again, completely um, in a different league is the wrong word, but in terms of charisma and in terms of engagement of the general public, links are a different level to a, a Scottish wildcat. And I think a key issue with Scottish wildcats is um, the hybridisation issue. So yeah. when people see a cat, they're not sure whether it's a wildcat or not. And that's sad. And the projects we work on at Wildcat Haven uh, are dealing with that issue. We want people in these areas, when they see a cat, to know it's a wildcat. So I think the issue of hybridization is damaging for the kind of, how to put it, for kind of the image of, of the wildcat. For the fact that a wildcat is not um, the same size of the lynx, is not a predator of the same stature, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't square up to a lynx. It doesn't um, have the same draw as a lynx. But I mean, like I say, you know, there is there was an, a massive report done on um, on carnivore introduction across Europe, and they showed the the money generated across Europe, and it was hundreds of millions of pounds. It was enormous, and that's and that's proven whether it's it's brown birds in Greece or lynx in Germany. You know, the, the scientific data is irrefutable. These animals generate entire ecotourism industries around them. It just does. Look at Yellowstone with the wolves. Exactly the same. Yeah, I, I, I actually read the, the piece about the wolves being referenced in Yellowstone, which in, in recent months, so in in last couple of years, there's certainly been, you know, that's kind of flipped flipped around and there's they're starting to see now the massive negatives of wolves in and around Yellowstone with the effect on their... Um, uh, caribou populations and the various other you know populations of animals that wolf um, predate on, and they've got themselves in a situation now where they're finding it very hard to um, push through changes to allow them to control what has turned into uh, you know well what has become a massive success, but in some areas has sort of gone too far. And now they're struggling to actually control it because they can't get the legislation pushed through and it's really affecting these what were you know very large populations of uh, of elk and, and very other various other deer species could that ultimately happen here and would there be a safeguard in place to make sure that that didn't happen for our wild populations of deer i mean you say that they, they couldn't they wouldn't out eat it but... it could never ever 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 happen because Predators don't control prey populations. Prey populations control predator populations. But that's through boom and bust, though. So it's not boom and bust. Not boom and bust at all. Well, it um, is with the wolves, if you think though. About it, if, if, you, if you were a lynx in a, and deer density was going down, your breeding rate would go down. Your survivorship of your cubs would go to practically zero. 
because there simply wouldn't be enough. Your kill rate would decrease to a point where you couldn't support, you could barely support yourself and certainly couldn't support a, a growing and demanding litter of kits. So it just, again, it's biologically, it's biological, it's just irrelevant. Predators don't, it, dynamics don't work like that. They don't out-eat themselves. Large predators, large carnivores don't out-eat themselves in open systems. It just doesn't happen. I mean, I think... I think... We're talking about an open system here. We're talking about an open system. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about ostensibly um, a large tract of Scotland. This is not a closed system. It's not a glorified safari park. It's, it's um, you know, it's a country. Yeah. And, it, and so you can't apply um, even kind of national park closed systems you can't apply that to an open system that is scotland i mean, I mean yellowstone yeah yellowstone's all, all, all about a <laughs> quarter the size of scotland and uh but no yeah, i mean no, no, no yellowstone's big but it's all, but it's also um you know the wolf numbers have, have grown in there and it's and it's on one level a closed a closed system well i mean they, but they cross over the, the the boundary and they've been causing issues outside the boundary my point was that They've. It's a it's a different deal to the links, but it was still a reintroduction, and it has still got to the point now in certain places where it's physically a problem, not only to the natural populations, which that is fact. There are plenty of there's plenty of evidence um, to support that, and as well as um, agricultural as well. But they're really finding it difficult to change um, change the rulings and legalities of it so that they can control wolves now. Now, wolves are you know, a totally different species. So my, my question was that, okay, you're saying it will never happen, but let's let's pretend for a moment it does happen. What is... Uh, oh, no, <laughs> let's not pretend. Let's not, no, but it's not, a serious not, question, let, though, Paul. Let, let, let's, no, to, to even imply, seriously, that you think lynx will um, control deer populations to the extent that they will cause numbers to... To kind of out eat themselves is utterly okay. Well, let me ask you this question then: Why, in some European countries, do they allow them to be harvested and hunted? Why do they allow lynx to be harvested and hunted? Yeah, for um, generation of income, primarily. But it would have to be; they're all government sanctioned, and they obviously control the population. It's a trophy species, isn't it? And it's quite a. It's quite a um, sought-after trophy species. It's like saying the same reason why people will trophy hunt in in Africa. They don't, well, you, know, um, you know, even the trophy hunting of all sorts of things. Some of those animals are actually in negative population declines. Well, I mean, I think we'll we'll leave that debate because it's. it's, it's that, that's that's a long debate, and I could I could talk a very long time on on uh, hunting in Africa because I've done a ton of it. Um, but in, in Europe, with regard to uh, hunting lynx populations, it is sanctioned, sanctioned by, by governments, obviously, because it's all on, a, on, all on a permit basis. And they obviously wouldn't do it if they didn't think that there was some form of uh, control needed. It can't just... Absolutely not. I'm sorry, I, I've, speak, I've spoken to the people who issue these permits. Right. <laughs> we've, we've met them. It's done for sport. It is not done to regulate the populations. Absolutely not. Again, go and ask them. And they certainly won't say they're issuing a small number of lynx trophies to control the population. Again, you know, go and see it. 
Okay. Go and see for yourself. Any, anyone, anyone who's listening to this, go and you know ask the people who are, who are doing this. They're certainly not issuing licenses to control lynx populations. Okay, so uh, we uh, accept that, but I still, I still want some sort of answer on the question: if a pop, if the, a certain portion of the population. Okay, let's say this. Let's say. There you, are, you, might, you, might, a, you might as well ask me, well, what happens when they get too much? Are we going to put them on the moon? No, no, no. I'm not going to deal in a. No, this is no, but no, this is this is a this is a very this is a very important aspect to understand because we see this time and time again with various species that are introduced, protected, and then there's no recourse if there's ever an issue. Now, I'm not. I, I you've you've said okay, there there is never ever going to be an issue with lynx, which. Is fine. I don't think you can really say never ever with with anything. But if there is an issue, say in a particular area, I mean, let's take uh, one of the the, the peninsulas, uh, you know, in in Scotland, which is you can only access, you know, through a, a, a relatively small area. If in those areas there was an issue, there has to be a plan to counter that. I mean, you have to look at those eventualities as as small as they may be. Uh, the possibility of happening, people are still going to want to know the answer to that, just so they've got that safeguard. And, and the answer is, um, you know, as you've seen the conversation, we are we are looking to mitigate any risks by compensation, by using compensation. Well, that's with for uh, that's in reference to agriculture, though. I, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, we're. <laughs> I know we're we're quite far into this. We haven't got to that yet. But uh, I wasn't referring to agriculture in in particular. It'd be quite difficult to define. Uh, you know, the or pay compensation on wild species loss. But peninsulas, you know, peninsulas are links can move off peninsulas, and they will if the density of the if the, the carrying capacity um, reduces. They'll be long gone before the the deer populations drop. So, are we? So, yeah, just just to be clear, the, uh, we ca- by definition is connected. So there currently there there is no recourse if there is an issue in an area apart from compensation. That's what no, I'm. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, so so the condition is we're we're going for a five year scientific trial, and and in that in that period, we don't believe that the issue that you're referring to is is anywhere near. I mean, it's so oh, no, I would, beyond the realm of possibility. I I I know. I totally I totally agree with you on that. I wasn't really talking about the five year trial. I was so kind of like thinking. I was, I was, I was thinking. You're, you know, you're successful. You prove it works. We get 25 years down the line, and you know, we've got a problem. Whatever that problem may be, there has to be a plan for for recourse, for for action, for relocation, well, well, for reducing well, numbers. Well, well, that, that, that will be. That will be. Um, you know, I, even when uh, a full reintroduction goes ahead, then that will, of course, be built into any plan of reintroduction. So I was, I was missing. I, I, it was, I, you can read me what you're actually asking. This is a five-year trial, and during that period, the chance of links, you know, out-eating deer populations is, is absurd. Obviously, in that, five years, after yeah. That, after that, it becomes a full-blown reintroduction. And then, of course, as part of that reintroduction, um, the licensing authorities will will have a say in that. Stakeholders will have a say in that, and there'll be plans in place um, for a whole range of eventualities that a reintroduction brings. Okay, so um, that would be control and, and, through and, and, whatever means. Everything from just... just Protective status of the animal to long-term management plans to genetic management to translocations to interactions with European populations that will of course all be built in. Okay. But you're talking 25, you know. I mean, to get to the point you're talking, you're probably talking 25, 50 years down the line. No, absolutely. But I, and the reason I I, oh, I brought well, that up was. But, um, <laughs> 
I won't be here then. No, I know, but it, there will be a plenty of there'll be plenty of other people who are here, and pen, plenty of other people who have to live I'll with be, the consequences I'll be, I'll be of a I'm being flippant on that. No, I, I, I realize that. You, 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 you know, you know the point I'm trying to make yeah. is this, this plan will will evolve. Um, the reintroduction will, will be a completely different instruction to the trial. You know, there'll be if, if it goes to a full reintroduction, there'll be different numbers of animals involved. There'll be multiple release sites. Um, there'll be genetic management. There'll be there'll be population management built into that program. Mm-hmm. Um, to to make sure the the lynx populations are healthy and well and 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 to some extent managed. Okay, so just to summarise that kind of uh, messy interaction, because probably you didn't realise I was talking over the long term future and sustainability. There will be if there's a full introduction, uh, it goes ahead after your five year trial. There will be measures in place for control of the lynx population should it be needed and should it's a problem. That will be um, built into the I, I, I assume, you know, and again, it won't be my decision on the, on the no. reintroduction at all. Um, it will be it will be down to the statutory agencies and licensing bodies to, to put those plans and measures in place should they see fit. It won't, it won't be the Link UK Trust that will do that. It will be the, the governments, DEFRA, SNH, etc. At that point, would they go and uh, re-engage with stakeholders, I assume? You, you, I'm not going to speak for... Um, for the government, you can again ask SMH what the policy will be on on that. I'll ask Defra. We might have to get them. We might have to get them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think you know. I assume they'll do due diligence and they'll do a full consultation, look at the, look at the evidence, and engage everyone. And um, you know, which, which is right and proper, and we, we'd welcome that. But you know, the decision to reintroduce will not be mine. It won't be the Link UK Trust. It will be made at, um, at government level. Final thing before we go on to the sort of the, the, the major agricultural potential conflict um, is you, you, you mentioned it just a minute ago, the genetics of it. Um, and this is something that I was, I was quite intrigued by. Obviously, you, six, uh, six links in, in each area, that's not a genetic footprint that's sustainable in the long term. If we're looking beyond your project, assume, uh, the, the five-year trial, assume it's successful. How do you make sure that you have sufficient a, a sufficient genetic pool that you don't end up with crossover. I've, I've read various different numbers about what's required for a hundred, uh, you know, for a hundred years survival, and the the average seemed to come out around. Uh, you needed an interaction between about two hundred and fifty individuals. Obviously, you've you've mentioned a couple of times we've talked about that Scotland as a whole can can sustain four hundred. Yeah. Um, so fortunately, I'm a geneticist. Um, so I I work on a number of projects um, all around the world, directly managing endangered species. So you know um, the links are in good hands uh, and with that with that um, area. So we'll bring a small number of links in, and there'll probably be one breeding cycle in the five years, one entire breeding iteration, and then when the five year period comes to an end, if it's deemed allowable to do a full reintroduction, then we'll augment that population with. Other individuals, okay, um, and every animal that comes in will be genotyped, so we'll have a DNA fingerprint, so we'll know exactly um, what's going on with that population. We'll be able to monitor them using um, fecal sampling. If any new animals born in populations, we have to get the DNA samples off them without even catching them, um, which is again very, very well-established science now, non-invasive genetic sampling. So these animals will have a population pedigree. As, as I do with black rhinos or bighorn sheep or tigers or whatever else we work on. And then um, they'll simply be managed for genetic integrity, for, to maximize genetic diversity. And, you know, it's a fairly trivial thing to do because 
1% of genetic flow, every basically 1% per generation is enough to um, add figure. Okay. So you would, you would uh, as and when required, you would introduce new blood, basically? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, if I can just hit pause with you for, for a minute, Paul, and I'll just go over to Pete. My next thing I want to talk to you about is um, the potential conflict between links and uh, the main agriculture element here, which is sheep farming. But Pete, uh, I realize you, you've obviously been listening to the, this whole story um, so far, and uh, paint, it's been painting a good picture of how the, this five-year trial is going to take place. But if we don't talk about that for a moment and just talk about your year in, in terms of sheep. You, you're a sheep farmer. You live uh, local to me. You are um, a representative for the, the, the British Wool Marketing Board, what does a, a sheep farmer's year look like in Scotland? Well, at this time of year, we, we're finally feeding our, our, our ewes ready for lambing, lambing season in the next, in the next uh, few weeks. Um, the lambs will all be landing on the ground just very, very soon. That takes anything from a month to a couple of months. Um, then into the, into the summertime, uh, they're shearing, and uh, we always treat our, our sheep for uh, ticks and, and various parasites and worms and things like that, liver fluke, uh, to keep them uh, fit and healthy throughout the summer. And they have to be shorn, of course, uh, to protect them uh, from fly strike over the summer. Uh, we sell the wool. It is, uh, it's not a high-value product, but it's a very important product that we, we sell the wool to the, to the carpet manufacturers in the UK. Uh, in the autumn time, we split up the, the lambs from their mothers, and uh, that is our lamb harvest. And depending on which which uh, part of Scotland or which part of the country you're from, um, uh, a lot of the highlands, a lot of the areas that we are talking about, uh, these lambs are sold on to finishers who will finish them on low ground uh, because the, the hills are too hard for, for finishing these lambs for the market. Uh, I myself finish my own lambs and they go to the market then steadily uh, trickle on through the market right through until this time next, uh, next year. Um, I still have about 150 of my last year's lamb crops still to market. I have some going to the abattoir tomorrow. Um, and then in the autumn, uh, it's uh, you have the lambs away from the mothers and it's ready for mating. And uh, they put in the rams f for mating and then it's keeping the ewes in good condition to look after them so that they mate properly to produce a nice fine lamb crop the following year. <laughs> I enjoyed one, uh, enjoyed lamb chops just the other day actually. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, your, your, your farm in terms of uh, the actual terrain, just, I, I, I know it fairly well, but coming, coming from yourself, just describe it to us for, for those people who don't know. Well, our farm is right on the edge of the, the Highland Fault or the edge of the Grampian Mountains. Uh, where we get a superb view of the low, <laughs> the low fertile country below us, um, and we're right on the edge. Uh, we do have a little bit of lower ground that we can we can cultivate some, some winter forage, but not very much. Uh, it's mostly heather ground, and uh, and we have some grass for finishing some of the lambs. And it, uh, you've got a river that runs, the, the North Est runs yes, right along right. you. Yes. And you've got quite a lot of uh, kind of bits of broken ground and, and forestry uh, around in the, in the lower areas of your farm. Yes, yes. There's a, there's a lot of trees, scrubland, natural, natural, naturally regenerated um, scrubland, uh, uh, silver birch. 
and it, it rears itself. There's never anything done to it. It, it uh, regenerates itself, the silver birch. What, um, from a sheep farmer's point of view, what benefit is that to you? It's obviously something you, it sounds like you, you encourage it. In terms of well, you're you're thankful for its presence. Well, it gives it gives you shelter from the from the terrible weather, mm. uh, for one thing. But the the woodland is actually more beneficial for the cattle because it protects them from from the terrible weather, and they can shelter in amongst the trees and the bracken and get get away from the high winds and the cold wet weather. Mm-hmm. And from, with your speaking as a sheep farmer. You've obviously, I imagine you've had this discussion, you know, with a lot of your, your colleagues as to what the, the potential impact could be of the, the reintrodu- reintroduction of a predator like, like a lynx. I mean, what is the, the main concerns that have been fed back to you from other people and then sort of your, your personal concern? Well, it's a feeling of complete and utter horror at the thought of a predator coming and killing your sheep, um, sheep, sheep uh, uh, shepherds and people who look after sheep are like uh, benevolent school teachers. We, we take our sheep flocks very, very importantly. We look after the, there's the five freedoms, the two most important being uh, freedom from pain, injury, and disease, and the fear of dist- freedom from fear or distress. It's very important to us. We, we take these sheep very, very seriously. They're, they're like old friends. We see when you see them, you lean over the fence and look at them, and oh, I remember that sheep. Oh yes, I remember that one. They are our friends, and the thought that anything would predate on these and and give them a horrible death just terrifies the bejesus out of us. Hmm. And in terms of um, current predation, I mean, what what is your main main threat to uh, to you currently? Foxes, to a certain extent. Um, and, they're they're, and they're the pretty, ravens, well, pretty well controlled, though. The foxes are not too bad. The ravens are, are really awful, shocking, very, very bad. The ravens and uh, seagulls, too, to a certain extent. But the ravens would be the, the worst one. They, they, they peck and the crows, too. They, they peck the sheep, especially at lambing time. They peck the sheep and peck the tongues out of the newborn mm-hmm. lambs and peck their eyes while they're still alive. It really is atrocious. Uh, ravens are actually a, a protected species, although I believe you can apply for licenses to control them, but the numbers are, are pretty small. Very, very but small, It's yes. obviously a, a problem for you. Yes, yes. Okay. And, Paul, if I can just bring you in for a minute now um, and talk about predation on sheep and the studies that have been done on that and, and the numbers that, that correlate to, to kind of address the, you know, the concerns of, of Pete and obviously quite a lot of other sheep farmers. Their concern is that you know, the husbandry of their sheep um, the loss of income and the loss of income by lo- by loss of sheep and everything else that that goes into you know managing a healthy a healthy flock. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I'll start by saying is I am certainly not against farmers or sheep farmers. I live on a farm. My family uh, are all farmers from um, Southwest Ireland. So you know I, I know the challenges of farming. I know the difficulties of farming. I know it's difficult uh, for people like Pete to make a, a living out of a sheep farm at the moment, and I, I respect um, farming, the farming way of life. So I want to I make it absolutely clear um, right from the start. I'm not, I'm not again, um, farmers. But, again, I'm a scientist, so I look at the data. So we go across Europe and we see what happens there, which is all we can do. And you look at 
the kill rates, and again, this is done by AECOM, who came with this data. And the fact of the matter is, not point, the kill rate is 0.4 sheep per link per year. So, put that in context of six links, we're talking 2.4 sheep per year. Now, 2.4 sheep per year is a number, but I would argue it's a it's a very low number, and it's arguably a an insignificant number. And for any sheep that were that were killed by links, any farmer will be fully compensated, and they'll actually get um, the way we're we're thinking about it is slightly above market value of the of the sheep. Now, but this is the important bit. Now I'm going to come on to next. So, 2.4 sheep per year killed by the links we want to bring in. I want Pete to tell me how many sheep are killed, how many sheep die every year in the UK from exposure and malnutrition. Because I've got the figures, but I just want to know whether Pete knows what the figures are. Uh, I- I can't. I can't answer that. I'll hand that over to no, Pete. But I imagine he won't have total figures in I, his mind. I haven't been no, doing the research on that. I just, I just, I just want that. an idea from Pete of how many sheep he reckons die each year from exposure on the hill and malnutrition. I, I don't. I don't no. think he doesn't have the, those numbers off the top of his head. Can I haven't he, been doing can research he, can on he that. Estimate, I'm not going clock. to give you an estimate. I haven't been doing research. You've obviously been doing research. Okay, but I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that, Pete. I'll tell you. It's up to six million. So up to six million sheep a year die through effectively bad husbandry, and 2.4, just 2.4, not 2.4 million, but just 2.4 sheep will die. Let's round it up to three. Three sheep a year will die from lynx kills. So if you put three sheep against six million. You can see the point I'm trying to make. I don't really. I completely dispute. Um, I completely dispute these figures. I think you've picked a figure completely it, it, out of Where, where have they come from, Paul? As a matter of you, interest, I okay. dispute these figures. The, the, the official, official. You said you could Google it. You're talking about the entire population of the the British sheep industry. The sheep, the British sheep industry is about six million sheep. To t- to try and pretend that six million. Um, die from malnutrition when there is only six million in the UK as a start. No, but the, all the all. The actual um, size when you've got the land out is a lot higher than six million, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're, I, I'm, I'm not going not to argue with you. I'm not. I'm certainly not going to argue, but I dispute your figures say, very strongly. Let me even say that. I'll, that let's just say twenty percent of that. Let's say one million. But I'm sorry, which just which to, just to, just to stop a second, a sec, Paul, so, because uh, this this is this I just want these numbers are really important for this, this is from the the .gov website. Um, so this is actually the government. Uh, there, you okay? So total numbers of sheep and lambs in the UK increased by four percent during 2014 to 22.9 million. Okay. Exactly. So you know, it's it's pretty said to be the one six million sheep in the UK, but it's actually four times that figure. And what I'm saying to you is, and these are facts from a number of reports used in the um, ACOM CBA, and they're all in the reference, so you can go and look at them. The simple facts of the matter are that between two and six million sheep a year die through effectively bad husbandry. And then going on a bit further than that, Pete said to me these sheep are his friends. And I understand that, you know, we have animals on our farm and you get very attached to them, of course you do. And the fact that those sheep being killed by um, those sheep being killed by lynx horrifies him. But I'd just like Pete to explain to me the process that happens when a sheep goes from his farm to slaughter. Because what happens to that sheep is 
and you see them on the motorway every day, they're herded, they're pushed into a wagon, they're crowded, they're sent on a long journey, sometimes to continental Europe, it's freezing, they're on a the motorway going along at 65 mile an hour in the back of a wagon, they're herded off, they're put through a metal chute, I mean, I think now you're just com talking complete and utter nonsense. I mean, I, I, I'm getting, I'm getting fed up with this. This is just ridiculous. I take my, I take my sheep to the abattoir myself. I, I, I make sure that the load is is properly loaded. They spend no longer than an hour in the wagon, and they're humanely slaughtered because they're they're um, electronically stunned beforehand. So to start and come out with that nonsense is just ridiculous. It's, so it's you have now made because, a complete fool. You know, you know as well as I do, the vast majority of sheep are not as lucky maybe as yours. You and know that because you know how many millions of sheep are sent, sent to slaughter, and you know that a lot of those sheep end up going to continental Europe. I mean, I think you know we're that. slightly, slightly diverging here, Paul, because. And the, 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 what I'm trying to make is right. If a link, if a link whacks a sheep in a field, which may or may not happen, and it will happen very, very rarely, I would argue that that is a far better way to go than the fate of millions of sheep that are sent to slaughter in I this mean, country. I, I think that there's a, couple, there's a couple of points here that I, I think we need to, to, to go back to. I, firstly, the, the slaughter, the, the slaughter of, of any animal, sheep, cattle, whatever, in this country, that, that's, an, that's an inevitable part of being a farmer. I think uh, Pete's point um, is that the husbandry during that point, up until the point that they, they end up as food on, food on our plate, is you know a, a level a level of attachment and care to those. At the point where they're they're, they're killed and they go into the food chain, I mean that's that's a, a separate discussion. And I think again, the yeah, but what I, what I was just going to say just to just to finish that is to I mean that. That example that you gave, which was at the very extreme end of it, again, it, it sounds, uh, it, it comes across quite sweeping because obviously that, that is not, the, that undoubtedly will occur in some instances, but you can't say that that's, you know, occurring the majority, you, the majority you, you of time. You're buying that sheep out loaded onto wagons and sent all over the country to slaughter, miles well, away from where they were born. Are you, you, tell, you still telling you, me that? No, you, 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 you went on and then into continental Europe. And we've just no, we've just okay, heard. Let's say in the UK, then they're linked to loaded up onto crowded wagons, driven down the motorway, taken to a slaughterhouse, lined up, and humanely dispatched. Yes, and that that's an inevitable part of any of, course, of the processes the that we have in the agriculture. That is actually, if you measure the cortisol level of that sh those sheep through that process, uh, we are, we're getting far higher than a, than, a, than a sheep that is killed by an ambush predator, um, such as links. Okay, let's let's just re rewind a second because I think the whole the, the death aspect of it is a is a completely separate debate, and I could talk with you for a very long time about that because I uh, I can see some crossovers as a hunter from what I think about you know hunting wild meat. But let's just talk about the actual deaths deaths of sheep for a minute and where the, those numbers come from because that's that's where this the, this the, the the debate in question originally came from the the yeah, point point they, four they, sheep. You come from scientific papers published across Europe. And, okay. Um, now they're in, they're, in the, they're in the CBA in the in the report, and they're, they're all there for anyone to see. Now I, I know from from uh, I think it was it was actually even mentioned in uh, your consultation. 
that there were considerably higher numbers um, noted in Norway. Um, can you just, I know you, that you, you explain it in the report, but for those people who haven't read it, just yeah. explain where those come from. Yeah, so again, Norway is a, is a different system to the UK. So Norway, sheep are farmed in the forest and they're unshepherded. So they're not found in open pasture land um, where people look after them, basically. So in Norway, the sheep use the same game trail as the deer in the forest. So the deer, so the sheep are in the same habitat as the lynx. Whereas in the UK, sheep aren't heard in the forest. Sheep aren't generally left for days, weeks on end without any shepherding. So it's a completely different um, process. So therefore, the numbers in Norway are higher than the rest of Europe, and it's the exception that proves the very clear rule. Because mm. I was just thinking about what we were what we were talking about earlier about the the terrain in Scotland and the the interspersed, uh, you know, sort of sparse, scrubby ground with uh, you know, native um, silver birch. I mean, that that pretty much describes uh, describes a lot of the gr the ground here, where indeed there are sheep throughout a lot of the year. That would say to me that that's a perfect crossover between the habitat that the lynx is going to be in and the uh, where 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 sheep are, which are obviously going to be a far easier food source than, than the roe deer and in, in far greater far greater numbers. So I, I am just wondering to myself whether the 0.4 number, which is not reflected in the the Norway numbers, is actually an accurate representation of the of of Scotland. Well, it's taken across um, lots of different countries. And if you take Germany, for example, where the lynx have moved out of the major initial forest block release sites, the kill rate of livestock doesn't go up. So when the animals, the animals are travelling through broken habitat, they're not necessarily in full hunting mode. They're not necessarily, um, you know, they're moving, they're moving around. They're not sitting in ambush, almost mm -hmm. by definition. And like I said right at the start, a lynx is not a, it doesn't run prey down, they sit and wait. So they'll sit and wait on game trails, and unless that animal goes on the game trail, the chance of that lynx predating that animal is, is very low. I mean, sheep follow the same trail every day, so I mean, I'm not quite, I'm not yeah, quite not, sure how that works. Not in the forest, though. Well, yeah, they, they do. I mean, the, the, broken, the broken habitat that we're discussing here, which, which we, as we discussed probably an hour ago now, will form in Scotland as part of that, uh, that map that you have in your consultation, will form part of that habitat that would be suitable for lynx, is, is exactly that kind of thing, gorse with um, what, what would be sparse-ish silver birch plantations. Uh, I mean, those are exactly the kind of places that you find sheep wandering, so, you know, one after the next to the same place every day. So, as we said, lynx may take some sheep. And we're not saying, and I'm not said at all, and I, I won't say, no one on the team will ever say, that lynx will not take sheep. Mm. What we're saying is the numbers will be, we predict, extremely low, and any numbers that are taken will be fully compensated. Okay. I mean, uh, Pete, if I could just go back to you, um, and I'm going to swing back to Paul with regard to how the compensation is going to work, but just give me an idea in terms of the spectrum of, of sheep value. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, it, is one sheep exactly the same as the next sheep? I'm not well, a sheep farmer. No. Well, goodness no, it depends on the breeding, breeding characters of the, of the sheep. 
And um, there was one sheep there that was sold in the autumn last year for £160,000. That's a lot of money. Well, if that sheep were, were accidentally killed by your lynx or some of his, some of his uh, progeny were, were killed, it would be a devastating financial impact. I mean, what would uh, I mean? What would the the offspring of something like that? I mean, you're well, obviously not talking the full amount, but it still it must be a lot more than the actual carcass value. Oh yes, because the the actual carcass value is is worth around about eighty to ninety quid at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, these these animals, because farmers had so much faith in in the bloodlines of that particular animal, they they will definitely recoup the hundred and sixty thousand guineas. Uh, on on that animal again by selling sons sons and embryos of that of that one sheep, and I would imagine uh, they'll overtake their hundred and sixty thousand by the time they've sold all the progeny that they mean to have off this one animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul, how's the how is the value? Well, f- two questions to you. One, where's the, for your your trial, and then beyond that. Where is the money coming from to pay the compensation? And secondly, um, how is that compensation calculated? Well, well first of all, um, the chances of a £160,000 price took wandering around the fields untended is, again, beyond remote. Um, so I'll just start with that point. But the conversation will be... You don't, know, be you don't know that at all, because I've seen, I've seen that 160,000 sheep, and it has been in a field, so it's perfectly feasible that it Unten- will be in the field. Untended. Yes. Untended. Well, you can't have someone with a sheep 24 hours a day, can you? No. no but these, but these, these price talks, as, as, as we know, are managed differently in artificial insemination use a lot as well. I mean, that's obviously the a extreme lot, a lot example. These, a lot of these price talks, I know, because I've seen them as well, spend a lot of the time in the barn. Um, protected, as rightly so, and because they're very valuable. Of course, I would protect and them if you had blooming links running is, about. Um, artificial, you know, artificial insemination is used a lot. I mean, that's that's obviously at the far end of the, the the spectrum in terms of price, but there's obviously everything. There's everything in between. So, to go back to my question, the there is obviously a different value to different sheep depending on the bloodlines that they come from. So how yeah. is the actual compensation going to gonna work? Is it going to take into account that? I mean, that, that could be a fairly... It be on the market value of the, of the sheep. But slightly above the market value we, we, we expect. Are you the, talking about the carcass value or the, the, the value of, you know, the, the bloodline? Well, you won't be able to value the bloodline. Well, you... Well, I mean, you, you can value you can't, the bloodline by auction. If you've got £160,000 up, then you've got 10 lambs off that. You don't really know what the quality of those lambs will be, and it'd be difficult to put a value on them until they're fully grown and you've been through the um, animal model and they've done the whole kind of trait analysis and they've looked at yields and they've looked at the breed and the fertility of that line and everything else. But there is obviously, there's obviously a risk that... Uh, the risk to the farmer, that is that of the potential unknown, but the guarantee that it definitely came from uh, an expensive bloodline. So what I just want to kind of get to the bottom of is, is that going to be, because this is sort of a, at the the very point of the where, where the sheep farmers will be coming from, will be that loss to them and that potential financial loss into the future as well as the, the, the immediate loss. Would that be taken into account or is it just going to be 
the 80, 80, 90 pounds of carcass weight, well, which is far we, less we than the true really value. Like to, we would really like to work with uh, NSA Scotland and the NSA to, to come up with a, a system that will work for everyone. This is the whole point of the consultation, you know. This is what we're asking for. So if people have concerns and the organisation have concerns, then they, they can clearly and easily relay those concerns to us. And as a lot of these organisations want to be stakeholders going forward and uh, on steering is going forward, then all these points can be made and built into our plan. That's what we want. We okay. want this kind of this kind of feedback, this kind of input, so we can develop our plan so it's inclusive for everyone. That's the whole point of it. So the the, the so there is the, so, the... So, so at, this, at this point mm -hmm. at this point um, the exact details of the compensation scheme are not um, established, and there's a really good reason for that is because we're asking the people involved to feed into those plans. Which is the exact reason for doing the national stakeholder consultation. And the where is the money? So for your five years and then beyond that, where would the money come from to pay to pay the, this you know this amount of money, which could be you know potentially if there's still due to be input uh, put in this in terms of the value, you know it potentially could be uh, you know a fair a fairly large sum. Well, you don't know. Well, again, if you look at the sums from Germany, it will be about four and a half thousand pounds. But who's paying um, for it, though? Which is which is which is uh, not a trivial amount of money, but in the big scheme, big scheme of things, it's um, you know, it's a it's a very easy sum of money to raise. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm thinking more. Uh, obviously, you know, you 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 prepare for success, but also prepare for every eventuality. It is yeah. it is possible that you may end up with, for whatever reason, the, the lay of the land, the way that the links distribute, you may end up, it is, it is possible that you may end up with a disproportional amount of uh, sheep kills um, compared to what you were expecting. Um, you, you can't say that it's not conceivable that that'll happen. And it could also be the case that you end up with, you know, a number of sheep from a particular area of a particular bloodline, and it's been agreed that you know that has to be compensated for. I can't really see a situation where it, it couldn't be compensated for because that could be a massive loss to that farmer. How are you going to guarantee that the funds are available to, to pay this? So, when a uh, condition of our license will be that appropriate funds are available, and we'll work closely with the statutory agencies on that. So, rest assured, there'll be no license given without the. Um, without assurance that the funds are in place for the agreed compensation and the compensation will be agreed with stakeholders and with the licensing authority. So it will be agreed. It won't be, as, you, as you're alluding to, a kind of unknown quantity. Mm. There'll be agreed values. So it won't be this kind of, and again, you again, which is quite amusing, these really absurd, extreme, hypothetical examples that bear no relation to the the actual reality of any situation. Well, I mean, yeah. I think that... You, know, you, you just said then, in one localised area, and they could get all the, all the, all the bloodlines, all the value of bloodlines. I mean... Well, I mean, it was... On. I mean, well, come on. I mean, I mean let's, 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 let's bring it back to reality. But the, also, but, but, but the reality also is that to, to give a per-head value of sheep uh, as a blanket value across the whole country is also ridiculous. And we, that's, haven't, we, we haven't proposed that. No, no, we haven't. But you said it would be a known value per head. Yeah, it would be a known so value. So it can't no, be. be a known value agreed with, and there'd be a known there'd be mechanisms in place agreed with the stakeholders and the licensing authority. And mm -hmm. I can't say 
any more or less than that. And at this stage, we don't know exactly what they will be because we're going through the process to find out those values and to agree those values with stakeholders. So, you know, we can't say further than that. What we're saying is we're open no. to discussion. We want to listen to concerns and we want to deal with them and we don't want there to be any concerns. We want it to work for for everyone. And, and you know, sheep farmers could be a, a big winner out of this because, as we've already said, and as Pete said, foxes um, are fairly significant land predators and links to some extent control fox populations. So what the ACON report says and what we believe from a biological point of view is sheep predation will actually decrease because of links. So you'll actually see sheep farmers will actually be better off. And again, I could make the same hypothetical. And let's say my links stopped your fox from killing your prized bloodline. Does that mean I've saved that farmer £160,000? I can use exactly the same argument that you've just applied to say that actually these links will predate on foxes and some of those foxes may have killed your prized, your prized lamb. I mean, I think it, it is slightly different because we're talking about a reintroduction of something that doesn't actually exist at this point. The, the predation of foxes is something that is well established and controlled, I might add. Um, but yeah, okay, no, I, I, I take your point about the hypothetical extreme examples, but it's just yeah, it's not, something... it's not useful and it's, and it's not very helpful, Byron, so I'd ask you to, uh, to not use them. But they're still, but the, these are the kind of questions, as we will see very soon uh, when we just get uh, to, to closing this up. These are the questions that people are posing, and it does seem reasonable to me to suggest that not every not every death has the same value because of uh, you know the reasons that we've just discussed. So that was really all I wanted to get to the bottom of was whether that would be reflected and 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 where the money would come from. So my last question on on the compensation would be. Post the, the five-year study and everything goes ahead and there is actually a, an introduction, the I can't imagine that you're just going to have a, a continual pool of money that's that sat, set aside. Is there something in place that you have in mind for how compensation would be paid or, or how that uh, revenue would be generated? Again, you're asking me about um, the reintroduction and, and we're not applying for reintroduction. No, but that is so the potential could, result the of, of At the end of five years, it could be that... Um, you know, the plan is not to reintroduce. We don't think it will. But let's say it is to reintroduce. Then again, as part of our licensing process, as part of the government consultation and government discussion, these issues will be ironed out. But I can't predict what the government will ask us to do or what the government will request us to do or even what the sheep market or sheep industry is like in five years' time. Mm -hmm. So I can't, again, I don't like to um, speculate wildly on hypothetical situations that I can't, um, deal with at this time. So we deal with the five-year trial and rest assured there'll be enough conversation in that around to deal comfortably with that five-year trial and then after that, depending on what the compensation structure is, the government will make a decision on how that goes forward. Mm -hmm. um, Pete, just to kind of finish up on this before we go to the, the questions that have been um, posed to us, what would you need to see at the end of five years for you to be to comfortable to be comfortable in the fact that this re uh, that a reintroduction, which ultimately is what we're talking about here, that the trial is for the purposes of achieving a, a yes or no on reintroduction. Um, what do you need to see to know that 
you know, it's not going to affect you in, uh, you know, in a, in a, detri in a detrimental way. What, what I've been trying to sort of go around this in, in terms of the, the compensation and the loss and what a, what a loss means to you. But, you know, what do you have to say to that so that you could sit back and say, you know what, let, you know, let's reintroduce links. Um, because ultimately you're going to be consulted uh, and that's what this whole process is about. Well, because I dispute Mr. Donahue's figures, um, if, if the small predation that he's predicting, this four point whatever it is, cheap, um, if he has such a phenomenal success rate, then it, it, it will be a success. Mm -hmm. But I dispute his figures wholeheartedly. I don't think he has a clue how many, how many figures. When you look at the Norwegian figures, the predation on sheep in Norway was, was phenomenal. Um, so and is that because you believe that the, the habitat here, uh, by virtue of your own farm and farmers you know, yes. uh -huh. would, 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 would be? Because yeah. the, they'll go for the slowest, the easiest prey, and, and sheep certainly don't run anything like as fast as deer. And and they go along the same same trail every day too, as you as you mentioned earlier. Um, I'm very very worried about it. The sheep industry is very worried about it. We've got forty eight thousand wool producers, and anything that that is to going to upset the the wool production chain would upset the British Wool Marketing Board. So, if we get to the end of uh, if we get to the end of five years, and project a little bit further beyond that and we do get the introduction of links and we see these very very small numbers of sheep that would be okay but i assume that if we see vastly vastly different amounts you would probably want something in place to to counter that yes i would i would want it stopped and sent that, back that's the whole, whole point of the trial if you're right if, you, if what i always say to people is if you're anti-links um if you're anti-links for introduction then you should welcome a trial because it, if you're right, then you'll be proved right. And if I'm right, I'll be proved right. So that's why we're saying, let's phrase this, let's couch this whole thing mm -hmm. in a scientific trial. Then instead of you saying one thing and me disagreeing and vice versa, we can simply look at the data. Is... And if it turns out that sheep kill, sheep kill the phenomenally high, they won't be, but if it did, then obviously that will be taken into account for any decision made from a full introduction. But if I'm right, as you say, and the data, and it's not my data, I haven't generated any of this data. This data has been, been gleaned from peer-reviewed scientific publications. It's not my, it's not my words, it's not my data. Um, the evidence suggests that it will be relatively few, few sheep, and as, and as you said, maybe it's good to hear that. If that's the case, then it will be a success. Mm -hmm. And no, I think so, that's so, that's so, undisputed. That, that's really good. And, and the issue is, what, what what we find strange is, people seem to think that when you bring links back to the UK, they're going to behave. They're not going to behave like links. They're going to behave differently to across Europe, and they're not. They're going to do the same. These are European links brought in from Europe, and they'll behave the same way they do across Europe, which is no threat to people, minimal threat to livestock, and massive drivers of rural regeneration. And like I say, Pete, I know I'm certainly not against um, farmers or farming. Um, I live on a farm. I know the system. I know how it works. And I'm not against you. And, and for us, one of the main reasons for doing a Lynx um, trial for a full reintroduction eventually is to actually regenerate rural economies. You know, I see a lot in Scotland that work in remote areas and I see a lot of um, communities that are struggling where the youngsters are moving out. There's no jobs. People are struggling. There's businesses, small businesses going, going to the wall. And that makes me extremely sad. 
And I genuinely, and I, I'm saying this, gen I genuinely believe that links can help to fix some of these problems in rural communities. And if they can, there'll be no one happier than me. Well, I, I think, Paul, the, I mean, the great thing about the, 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 what we've been discussing is that it, it is a trial. And the great thing about what we've been discussing is that it is a discussion. So these things can be, you know, can be aired and, and discussed and be, be taken account of. I do wonder, yeah. though, whether is six per site really enough for you to be able to project forward and say, yes, that was a success? Are you really going to get enough of, a, uh, enough of a data sample from a relatively small number of animals in each of these areas for you to be able to make an accurate, uh, an accurate estimation going forward for all of the data being collected? I think we'll certainly collect enough data to make the decision. But, um, you know, it could be that maybe um, we're advised to release more links. And extend the trial period, potentially. Who, who knows? So that's yeah. the thing. See, we just don't know. So all we can do to... I mean, the debate about um, carnivore reintroductions has been going on for decades. And instead of... And it's time for the, the talking to kind of stop... And let's see what the actual issue is. And the only way to do that is to bring them back and see what happens. And to put in whatever, whatever precautions, whatever mitigation we can to deal with any perceived or actual risks. And that's all we're doing. We're talking about a rigorously controlled scientific trial for a relatively small period of time with mitigation fully in place at every level. And we want buy-in and we want guidance and we want expertise sharing with every relevant stakeholder and, and there there is an exit if if this doesn't go you know the way of the links and it turns out that it uh, you know it's not not in favor in terms of the numbers that come out at the end the the exit strategy for removal is well at the end of five years yeah so yeah the, i mean will will be there'll be any strategy in place to to recapture those links okay and that that'll be a, a prerequisite of of any license. Okay, yeah. No, I assume that would be the case. I just wanted to to double check yeah. with you. Well, um, you know, we like I say, well, what I, what I wanna, you know, we do not think that this will be this will be a wonderful thing for the UK. It will be a really exciting thing for the for the UK countryside and people because it's what happens all over Europe. It's proven. It's, this is not like the first time links have been reintroduced. This is like, like I say, it's old news in Europe. It's proven to work almost everywhere. The the main so, uh, the main reason for me me asking about a potential exit strategy is actually just what was in the news just yesterday was that, I mean, uh, you know, the the beaver trials in Scotland have, I think, by all accounts, been an absolute disaster because there's been absolutely zero control at all, and there are now calls for they're actually being concerted effort to control what is turning into quite a considerable mess along the, the river lines that uh, the beavers have populated. So that was the main reason for my, my question there was just to know that, you know, you have it, uh, there is a plan to have it under control and there is a plan to reverse it should it not, you know, not be a positive outcome. It Absolutely. may very well be irreversible with the beavers now. Well, with links, you know, these links will be collared. Um, we'll know exactly where they are, and at the end of the five-year trial, you know, we hope those links will, will remain in situ. But there will be a strategy and a plan in place if those links have to be recalled. Okay. Um, I'm just going to go over to Daryl now, um, and he's just going to 
he's got a, a couple of questions, stuff uh, that hasn't been covered, if uh, that's uh, possible. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, I had these questions, and nearly everything has been covered. Oh, has it? Okay. Ne- nearly every single thing has been covered. Um, in one I need, I need to. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, I mean, they're huge. It's I've actually got less questions and more more essays than anything. But I mean, there's there's a few things that stand out to me, and I think you've already covered covered this, and it's more about food. Um, there's one person here, and they've said Germany doesn't have the large pheasant shoots, uh, which we do. Uh, if a predator is hungry and was to pass a pheasant pen containing five hundred, three thousand young birds, so on. Um, you know, the if the link doesn't eat them, um, it could cause them stress and illness. So I guess you could say that about fox in the same. I suppose you could say that same about lambs as well. Yeah, you yeah. Say that about a lamb, you say that about a cat, a dog, a badger, a fox, a deer. But I, I, so, yeah. I think more what they want to know is, you know, is a pheasant pen uh, an issue? I mean, uh, from what I understand, what you said, a lynx is not going to kill something unless it's going to eat it. Like a fox, in exactly. some ways, will just will decimate a pen. Yeah, lynx, lynx don't cash. The reason why fox kill more than one animal is because they cash. They're actually not being wasteful. They're actually planning for the future. Um, they cash that food, but lynx don't show that behaviour. So, so you know, lynx don't go and bury, um, kill multiple animals and go and bury a carcass for three months' time or, you know, a month's time. It they don't do that. So, you know, a, a pheasant to a lynx is not a, an attractive proposition, really. If you think about what they what they normally prey on, compare a pheasant to a roe deer. You know, I mean, it's not it's not a great meal. Okay, um, just w- one other question, and th- this is a concern. I think it's just a general concern of a few people. Is people's pets? Um, you know, uh, obviously, in some places there's a huge population. And now you've already said this. This is why I said we've actually covered a lot of this thing. Is uh, cats? You know, obviously there's a huge population of cats in in these areas. I'm I'm talking about domestic cats. Will, will yeah. that be a problem? Dogs? Will that be a problem? Small dogs? Uh, again, you... again, all you can do is look at the data and look at something like Germany, and it doesn't seem to be at all. Like I said, there's dog walkers through the forest where lynx are. We've seen them. There's people on bikes and all sorts. And there's, you know, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Lynx are very good at, at being lynx and staying out of the way. You know, a dog is noisy. It's normally accompanied by a human who's also noisy. You know, we, it's, a lynx will be long gone, absolutely long gone. They're not going to hang around and, and wait to see what's going on with it when a dog walker comes through. There was a, a, another question here from, uh, from somebody on, on the page that was, uh, they must have obviously read your, um, you know, must have read your, your consultation process and were looking at the, 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 the graphs of the surveys that were done with people's responses to, to your surveys about what they thought about links being reintroduced. I'm just uh, curious, what exactly was the, the question that was asked? Do, do you know? Do you have that to hand? There was five or six questions asked. And it was... Uh, well, I, I, I'm, what, I'm tr- what I'm trying to gauge is what... There six questions asked. Where about the actual... Um, cross-section of people that were asked. I know it, it breaks it down by, by urban and rural, but where about, were they actually in the specific areas that they were being, uh, where the potential sites are, or were they just a, a cross-section across the country? It was, a, it was, it was, it was an open survey. Uh, we got a lot of respondents from the areas of, of interest. And what was really exciting for us was, I think over 50% of the people who responded were from rural communities. 
So uh, this is this this was a rural seen as a rural issue, and it was addressed by people in the rural communities. And those people in the rural communities were unanimous in their support for this um, project. What what kind of numbers did you get back, Paul? What was your um, actual number? I, I can't remember if you said earlier on. So apologies. I think it's about, it was about nine thousand six hundred and fifty. A massive response in about seven days. And for any context, the Beaver Trail, I think they got about two thousand two hundred. Yeah, yeah. So you know that that just shows again the level of engagement, a level of excitement that links are bringing to the UK. It's wonderful to see. You know, I assume we all like the the countryside. We all want the countryside to thrive, and there's not many better things you can do than to bring links back. Have you, um, apart from, well, I'm assuming the answer to this is yes, but I'm wondering what the the result of it was. Apart from the the discussion that we're, we've been having here from with Pete from the, the farming side. What other discussions have you had just with, with the agricultural farming and sheep in particular? You must have had the, the similar debates yeah. and discussions previous to this. Yeah, I've spoken directly with Phil Stocker. I've been interviewed with Andrew Bauer, and I've spoken to uh, Andrew Bauer. So, yeah, we, we're, we're, I've been to, I've presented at um, the National Gamekeepers Organization, oh, yes, AGM, yeah, yeah. for 60 to 70 um, gamekeepers. We'll, we'll speak to anyone. And, 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 you know, we want to speak to everyone. That's why we've done, we will have done the most thorough consultation, conservation consultation ever done mm-hmm. in the UK. Being, be, be, you know, no mistake about that. And we want, we want to speak to people. We're not hiding. You can see, I'll answer any question you put at me, but I'm not afraid to defend the position that we, that we are taking and because we think this is the right project to do. So, you know, sometimes I'll be, we'll be blunt. Sometimes we will talk about uncomfortable um, truths and I make no apologies for that. And if anybody wants to engage, uh, be involved, learn a bit of more, uh, a bit more about it, what, what's the the best place to find to find you guys and what you're doing and all the information and be be involved? It's really easy. If you go onto the website, there's a there's a huge section on consultation. You can't miss it. It's got all the documents there you need to see. You can download them um, as PDFs, Word documents, print them off, read them. There's a media, um, there's a, a consultation email there, so you can email us directly, we'll get back to you. You can um, leave us your phone number, ask us for a call, we'll call you back. You can, if you're, um, if you're a stakeholder and you want to be invited to a steering group or if you think we've not consulted you, tell us. We'll send you a consultation document. If you want to come to an event as a stakeholder, come. Come along, we want to see you there. We want everyone to be there and everyone to be engaged. And at the um, this, I feel like this is covering the same ground we covered before, and it's pretty much my one of my final questions. But at the end of this, once you've gathered all of this data together and you've got everybody's consultation, who is it exactly that you sit down in a room with from government to to basically put all this uh, put all this together and find out you know what direction the trial should take? Um, so, so what I will say is we have been um, meticulous in our. Um, dealings with the statutory agencies. So we have kept them up to date with every step of the way. They saw the consult SNH saw the consultation document before it went out. Okay? They they've seen it. They've looked through it. Okay, they've they've um they've we've worked with them on we've had meetings, discussions with them about the translocation code to make sure we're following it to the letter. So when this application lands on their desk, it will be no surprise at all. They'll know exactly the process we've been through. They'll have been 
talking to stakeholders themselves. They'll be talking to us at every single point through this. So, you know, the license application will be will be given to them, delivered to them. And we expect the statutory agencies to um, do due diligence, to look at it thoroughly, to take all views on board and to reach the right decision. And we believe there's only one logical decision that you that you could reach at the end of at the end of the information that we'll we'll hopefully present. And uh in terms of dates, we are now at March two thousand and sixteen. Where yeah. where's the, the, the cutoff points and when could we possibly see the first trials of links in Scotland? And so we anticipate submitting the license um during the summer of two thousand and sixteen. Um and then it's over to the statutory agencies, and we will we will um, look to agree a, a, a decision deadline, and we want that to be reasonable. And I'd say there'll be no surprises for them; they'll be well informed by the time they even get the license. And we we expect um, you know a reasonable response time, and then once we've got the response by that we hopefully that we want, then. There's plans already in place, and we're working with our European counterparts for the links to be brought in at the earliest possible at the earliest possible opportunity. But that that the only unknown in that at this stage is the decision time of the um, of the statutory agencies, okay. and, I, and I and I can't and I and I wouldn't yeah. want to speak for them. How long is a piece of string with regard to those those aspects? I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, like I say, you know, um, it will, it must be reasonable, mm-hmm. and we don't expect it to be that lengthy because. As I said, I'll say it again for the third time. It's, it should, they should be aware of what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think. Well, we we really have uh, you know run on here. It's been it's been a, a really good debate. It's certainly been one of the most intensive ones that, that we've done on the podcast today. And uh, it's uh, it's an issue which is obviously close to a lot of people's hearts. It's uh, it's something which is is fresh and new, and it is the introduction of something that we haven't seen for thirteen hundred years. You know, the landscape has has changed a fair amount in that. So obviously there's going to be concerns from various different parties from, from all angles. And obviously, uh, you know, the flip side of that is that, you know, you've been putting forward your argument for the reintroduction, um, you know, of a species that was here prior to that date. And I'm sure that a lot of people, um, you know, will have a lot to take away from this. And I, and I hope that, uh, you know, some of what we've discussed and what um, Pete has expressed uh gets built into um you know your thinking and, and part of the the consultation for things to to take into account of, of but of course um, i mean are you are you a member of any of the um, livestock organizations yes okay great well you know speak to them and, and pass on pass on your thoughts if i see you i'll buy you a pint Thank you, more than one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, um, chaps, thank you so much for your time, Paul. I know that you're heading away somewhere tonight, so I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to come on no come on the podcast, Pete. Thank you very much uh, for your time, and uh, you know for for taking you know w- what has been a you know a, a difficult debate for, for and rightly so because of you know the importance and implications of it. Um, but Paul, thank you very much. Pete, thank you very much, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Well, thank you very much for joining us on another episode of our podcast. It was this one was very intensive in places, as you have now listened. You you will understand. Byron's head was frazzled; he couldn't actually think after that. That's why we went back 
uh, we ca- we brought it out two weeks later just so that we could fact check a few things. And at the very beginning, you could hear all that. Yeah. So if you want to go back and double check anything that you thought wasn't argued correctly, listen to the first 30 minutes of this podcast because we try and go over some of the important aspects. Uh, but we will leave you for now because we have taken up a lot of your time this week. We have. Join us again in two weeks. Remember, you can download it on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and SoundCloud. This podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Until next time. Oh, until next time. <laughs>